Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Guys, we're back. I am back. We are back to weekly episodes. I was going to maybe keep the every other week thing going a bit longer, but I've just got a lot of interviews banked that I already recorded and that I'm anxious for you to hear. And, you know, Soren is six weeks old now, and uh, I love spending time with him. I spend a lot of time with him every day, just gazing into his gray blue eyes But also, my brain needs to kick back into gear. I had this long conversation with Sarah and Myron a couple days ago, and it was so great. And I was like, oh, man, I'm back. I got to be back. My brain needs me to be back. So we're back. Weekly episodes. No more weeks off uh, anytime soon. This conversation uh, is one that I knew I wanted to have as soon as I started reading a bit more about the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. It's not really a conversation about like theology in light of COVID-19 or Christian living in light of COVID-19. Really interesting topics. And Myron kind of hints at some of what that might be. This is more about the problem of evil, uh, which is the biggest problem for most Christians uh, that I know anyway, to reconcile the suffering of the world with their understanding of a good and loving God. It's my biggest problem. It's my biggest doubt. 
uh, and we and I got two two friends who are brilliant to come on it and talk with me about it. Myron Penner is a philosopher at Trinity Western University in British Columbia, and Sarah Lane Ritchie is a theologian at the University of Edinburgh. They've both been on the show before, so if you recognize them, that's why. Myron did the episode on cognitive science of religion, and Sarah, the one on psychedelics and other spiritual technologies, which was also about sort of the physical human brain and what does that say for worship and liturgy uh, and our experience of God. Also in that episode, we talk about the problem of divine hiddenness, which is sort of related to the problem of evil, but the fact that some people don't experience God who really want to. And Sarah counts herself among that group, which you will hear today. This is a long conversation, but it moves briskly. Uh, we, We cover a lot of ground. I really loved it. Josh, my editor, told me that he really liked it, and he doesn't just kind of puff me up for no reason. So probably this is really good. I hope that you agree, and let's get into it. So, Sarah, can you first walk us through the two basic problem of evil prongs? There's the problem of moral evil and the problem of natural evil. What is Mm -hmm. the difference? Sure. So the problem of moral evil is basically bad things that happen in the world because of human sinfulness or fallenness. This is these are the things that we're looking at when we talk about the Holocaust, murders, you know, insert your awful thing that humans do to each other of choice. And this can also be extrapolated to things that humans do to the natural world, sort of like natural, physical, like problems in our ecosystems that are directly caused by human beings, that kind of thing. But it's basically evil, moral problems that are caused by human fallenness in one form or another. Natural evil... Uh, or natural suffering, uh, on the other hand, is basically those forms of suffering that are due to the intrinsic nature of the natural world itself. So you often hear this quote that nature is red in tooth and claw. Um, This is the idea that for our life to exist, for the natural world to be what it is, for human beings to exist, there has to be uh, intense seemingly gratuitous suffering and pain and death and bloodshed in the world. It's this idea that no matter whether or not human beings had were fallen or had ever sinned in any way at all, the natural world would have to be riddled with suffering and pain in order for things to be what they are. What's interesting is I think that all three of us in this conversation are going to agree that that's in fact, you just described the world. Some people, maybe in a more conservative frame of reference would say, no, you know, it's not that bad or or something to that extent. But we're going to say, no, it, it really does appear that in order for us to have a podcast about theology, it really does need to be this or it appears to be really, really bloody and all the suffering and stuff. And so then the question is, is that going to present a problem for us to posit or follow a loving God, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly it. So, Myron, you're the philosopher here, and uh, you helpfully in our conversation that we had over Facebook Messenger last week, you said, okay, well, here are sort of the two main ways that people have discussed the problem of natural evil, uh, and and they're they're different, but they both fall under this category. So what are these two kind of ways of thinking about it? 
Well, I think it's helpful to think about uh, our discussions of, you know, natural evil as a problem as part of a larger discussion about how is it that we form beliefs about God and how is it that we should look to nature to inform our understanding about God. And so, you know, lots of Christians will look at evidence from nature and just automatically draw inferences about what they think God is like. And the philosopher David Hume, you know, who a Scottish philosopher, British empiricist, you know, in this kind of time at the rise of science where people are, are starting to develop these new methods for doing empirical science and apply it to theology, he uh, wanted to speak to his contemporaries and put the brakes on their theologizing a little bit to say, well, look, if you're going to use empirical data to inform what your beliefs about God are, uh, you can't just screen off all the bad examples, right? It's not just fluffy bunnies and pretty rainbows. You have to look at the suffering uh, that there is in the world, too. And if you couple that with some basic, you know, reasonably plausible, at least for Hume, assumptions about what you think uh, a perfectly loving, all-powerful God would, would create, and you compare that to the actual data that we see, uh, it seems like there's kind of an inconsistency there. Uh, and one of the things that Hume uh, wanted to point out was that, you know, there are lots of things that it seems like even a minimally good, reasonably competent God wouldn't do. And yet, uh, those are the very things that we see in the world uh, in which we live. And so for Hume, one of the things that he thought is, is, is inconsistent with uh, uh, a theistic God is um, giving creatures, you know, just barely enough skills to, uh, to navigate their, their world. And if we look at, you know, situations like the, uh, the pandemic that we're in, you know, there are lots of communities, lots of populations that are just underwater when it comes to dealing with just the, the physical consequences of that. Uh, and so Hume would look at that and uh, he would see that as evidence against a theistic God because it seems like people haven't been given uh, the skills to be able to to navigate successfully or if they are just kind of barely, barely minimally. So that, that's kind of one one kind of response is kind of a Humean response. Before we go on to the other, I think there's there's two things I want to flag about that. One is Hume's writing before Darwin, right? Yes. So he's working with kind of a, a more of a medieval and Renaissance understanding of the world that like God sort of makes the world more or less as we see it today. And I think that that has an interesting interplay in terms of, well, why would there be some of these creatures who are just barely able to survive and other creatures who are thriving at the top of the food chain? If you thought, you know, like basically everybody before Darwin, almost everybody that like, yeah, this is just the world God made. Then there really is like a, why is the clock that the clockmaker made, why does it have these like shitty parts in it that are always breaking? Like, why not just make a better clock? That's, that's worth that's, noting. I, I think that's a that's a, a great point, and I think that you know, for people for whom the idea that in order for God to create any world, it must be specially and directly created exactly the way that it is, there's a, a special kind of burden that that is placed on that kind of theological framework for how to understand both moral and natural evil. Yeah. And then the second thing, which is related and which will definitely come back at the end, but I just want to flag it here. There's a question about how much control God has over how things go naturally. And I think also implicit in that Humean critique is that God is, has complete control. Like God could make any world God wants to make. Uh, and that is that, that's a view that probably most pew sitting Christians have sort of held over the years. Uh, but that's something that we're going to challenge later on in this conversation. But I just I noted it that, yeah, assuming God has full control over what the physical world is like, then 
this seems to be a real problem. 100%. One of the courses that I teach at Trinity Western is a philosophy religion course called Suffering and Belief in God. And it's uh, an opportunity for us as uh, a class through a whole semester to kind of plumb different aspects of how uh, and in what ways the experience of different types of suffering should cause us to think about, about you know, different models of what God is like. And uh, you've touched on some some key points there in that human free agency, freedom. What what does that mean? Uh, God's kind of providential care or different mu- views about how God interacts with creatures is all relevant to the experience of, of suffering, regardless and related to whatever kind of evidential force you think there is in, in analyzing suffering. So there's a whole host of interesting kind of theological concepts there. And I'm sure Sarah's got lots of good things to say about that as we have our, mm-hmm. our conversation. Yeah. Okay. But so, Myron, there's this other angle, and this is a more contemporary critique from the philosopher Paul Draper. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So Draper has this really interesting and thorough way of, of looking at what he calls um, the hypothesis of indifference, right? So so Draper, in a very kind of uh, rigorous way, says, well, let's, let's compare two kind of explanatory hypotheses to account for the data. And in some ways, it's very human in its spirit to say, well, look, you know, if, you, if you're going to look at observations in nature to inform your understanding about God or to see how it all fits together, you have to, you have to include all of it. And so Draper uh, says, well, let's just look at the way that sentient creatures, you know, creatures who have some kind of ability to, you know, be conscious in some respect or some degree of consciousness. How how do these creatures experience both pleasure, good things, uh, but also pain and and the um, instances of suffering that they might uh, encounter? You know, there are some pains that are biologically useful, but not every pain is biologically useful. And there's a whole bunch of different categories that he applies and he says, well, if that's kind of our data set, if that's kind of the data from the, from the empirical world, what is the best kind of explanation for the observations that we make? And so two hypotheses to consider is one is that, well, you know, these sentient creatures are the, you know, intentional product of the will of a divine agent who has best interests for people at heart and, you know, is, is lovingly and providentially in control of, of creation. That's kind of one hypothesis. Uh, the other hypothesis is that, uh, and I paraphrase, the universe doesn't give a shit. Right. That the universe is indifferent to the experience of sentient creatures. Right. So not to say that that the universe is malevolent, but not to say that the universe is benign either. Just to say that the way nature is set up uh, is that the the natural world is really indifferent to to our experience. And so he thinks that that's kind of um, a a much more reasonable way of, of, uh, you know, uh, accounting for the way in which people actually experience things. Uh, And so. You could apply that to all sorts of instances, both for moral, but also for natural evil, too. And so there's a, a kind of an, uh, an updating of the human kind of response to say, you know, if you're going to look at, at the natural world to inform our beliefs about God, you have to you have to account for all of it. My initial take is that there is some aspect of a response to Hume that would also be a response to Draper, which is, again, focusing on, like, as you said, God is lovingly and providentially in control. It's really going to depend on what we mean by providentially in control. Uh, And that might, quote unquote, get us out of this. But I I do want to admit that some version of the hypothesis of indifference, not always applied to evil or suffering, but also applied to like pluralism, applied to, I don't know, just just all kinds of stuff in the world. This is the plane on which my own internal struggles with God existing or not existing or whatever. This is where they fight it out is like basically on a bad day, spiritually speaking. It seems to me that this is all just random, that like that. Oh, randomness is maybe a better explanation for all of this than 
you know, a God sort of in the mix with us. And so there's something I think stronger, I guess, about the Draper question than, than the older 300 year old Hume question. Um, Sarah, I want to get this angle in here before we talk about how coronavirus would play into this, because I think it's worth noting before we get there. And you brought this up in the chat and it's about the differing levels of suffering experienced by people Mm -hmm. In similar situations, we might call this a kind of um, individual pluralism or I don't know, you come up with a name for a, a term for that. Yeah, exactly. It's almost as if there's some sort of differential kind of categorizing that we can do where people tend to experience varying levels of suffering to the same uh, events or circumstances. And also people tend to experience different levels of suffering to different circumstances. So for the first example, the first, the first kind of stream here might be, um, for example, two siblings who grow up in the same household experience the same sorts of trauma or the same sorts of, um, you know, difficult life experiences of one form or another. And those two siblings could very well experience those circumstances with varying levels of suffering and respond to them um, accordingly. So one might experience the uh, event as particularly traumatic, go down a, light, a life or a path of addiction and um, you know have what we all might call a tragic life. The other sibling may well not experience the same events as being nearly as traumatic as the first sibling did and may have a very different life path as a result, right? So there's this question of what accounts for the difference in the levels of suffering in response to any given circumstance. And the second stream is um, related, but a little bit different. It seems as though people are more sensitive to different sorts of suffering, right? So for example, we are now obviously in the time of global pandemic. Some people are experiencing or may, may very well be experiencing just the sheer existence of a pandemic like this as, ext- as, as, as causing them personal suffering, even if they are not being personally affected yet by the uh, virus um, within their own family, for example. Um, and for instance, somebody just, with OCD or other exactly. kinds of anxiety disorders yes. might be really triggered by this and yes. cause in- intense mental mm-hmm. suffering, even though nobody they know has gotten it. Yes. Or even just being aware of the numbers of people that are being like killed by this, by this virus, for example, um, might cause a level of internal suffering about just sort of others pain uh, for some people. Whereas other people may not experience that sort of suffering in response to this pandemic, but may well experience an intense level of suffering when they go through a difficult breakup, for example, or their parent dies or some, you know, so there's some other sort of personal tragedy in their lives. And there seem to be differences between individuals and the sorts of experiences and the sorts of like data that cause them intense suffering of one form or another. And that is just interesting on a number of levels. There's two interesting, interesting things about this angle. One is that in some sense, this is truly a glass half full, glass half empty thing. Uh, Unless you think that God, again, could unilaterally create any sort of perfectly fair sort of a world, then this seems to be unfair. But if you don't think that, then you really could go either way. On the one hand, you could say, gosh, how lame is it that God made a world where people could have all this suffering uh, that other people wouldn't have? Oh, you know, such additional suffering. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, you could say, ah, how cool it is that in the kind of world that God could create, 
some people are more resilient and have less suffering than other people when the same circumstances hit them, right? Like that one is – that feels very much like teetering on a knife's edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, there's a sort of subjectivity to suffering that I don't think you can get around. Um, when we talk about objective instances of suffering in the world, uh, it, it seems to fall apart as soon as you start looking at individual human lives and individual circumstances in, involved. And uh, there's also a question of degree here. I mean, Myron can talk more about this, but there's this uh, sort of like age-old debate within discussions about the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, about why God couldn't have done just a little bit more, right? So it's like the little bit more argument. Like, why couldn't there be just a tiny bit less suffering? Why couldn't one more person not have died of coronavirus? You know, like, you know, is it really necessary that the gratuitous levels of suffering be what they are? But what is considered to be gratuitous suffering is not objective, right? So within an individual life or within the, the hum, within humanity as a whole, there's an inevitable level of subjectivity involved in our assessment of suffering within individuals and in, in communities as a whole. One way that I've heard gratuitous suffering explained uh, and, and tried to be pinned down in a more objective sense, not that you'd necessarily know it when you saw it, but a definition would be an instance of suffering that all things being equal – the world would be better without it. That's interesting because it's sort of a circular definition, right? Like if such suffering does exist, then yeah, it's gratuitous. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that no such suffering exists and it is in the eye of the beholder and how much confidence should we have in our ability to know? Like for instance, if we end up coming down on the side of, well, there are certain kinds of worlds God can't create. God is like bound by God's nature not to create certain kinds of coercive worlds. Mm -hmm. Then perhaps there is no better option such that all things equal would be better because all things being equal, not having that suffering would be no world at all or something Mm -hmm. like that. Myron, do you want to jump in here on this? Oh, uh, such rich discussion. Want to jump in on a couple of things. One one thing, the um, philosopher William Rowe, who for decades was advancing different forms of, of an evidential argument from evil, uh, one of the, the ways in which he talked about gratuitous suffering or, or pointless evils, to, to use his language, was that uh, an evil is going to be uh, gratuitous or, or pointless uh, if uh, it doesn't bring about uh, a greater good that would be that would make the evil uh, worth it, uh, or uh, it doesn't bring about a good that could only be achieved through that evil, right? So, you know, if there's some kind of instance of evil uh, for which there doesn't seem to be any reason that's worth it, uh, and he's, t- he's talking about, you know, kind of an objective moral space of, of reasons, right? And, and an interesting thing about proponents of, of different arguments from evil, right? You know, people who are looking at, at data of evil and suffering in the world as, as having some kind of evidential force against the, the, the claim that there's a, a God, a loving God. Those kind of arguments tend to assume that we can make kind of objective moral judgments. And, and we can also see on the basis of the evidence that we, that we gather just by looking around that this wouldn't be the case if there were a God. I think, too, just just to kind of follow up on uh, Sarah's interesting observations about kind of the psychological makeup, uh, there's interesting literature on uh, personal happiness and well-being, which suggests that people kind of just, it's almost like a thermostat setting, you know, and you can kind of predict what how how generally, you know, barring extreme circumstances, a, a person's happiness setting is, is going to be based on other things, like, you know, how optimistic are they, what's their own self-view, uh, other kinds of things. 
And then when they experience, you know, either a great crisis, you know, it's going to adjust the setting down for a little bit. But after a little while, it's going to kind of revert back to what the natural kind of setting is. Or when they experience great, great, you know, blessing of some sort, uh, it's going to make them even happier. Then over time, it's just going to kind of settle back down to what their setting is. And I think it's right to kind of think how we navigate you know, trying and challenging circumstances, we bring kind of our own individual psychological makeup to to what we do. Yeah, that is actually a really good point as well. And I hadn't thought about that until you mentioned that, Myron, that people are terrible predictors of their own future happiness or unhappiness based on current circumstances. Um, They're just awful at it. Like people tend to overestimate the positive benefit of good events in their lives and the negative effects of, of, of painful and traumatic experiences. What, t- what tends to actually happen is that, yes, there will be an acute phase for both like positive and negative experiences, suffering and happiness, for example. But the long-term impact of those events on people is much, much less than we predict. And there are evolutionary reasons for that. Like there are reasons mm-hmm. why we would need to, like why it would be important to be overly worried about negative events happening or to be overly driven to pursue things that might lead us to have uh, experiences that feel positive in one way or another. But it, it is just interesting that we are not reliable predictors of our own f- future experience of the world. N- not only not reliable predictors, we're not reliable rememberers either, right? It'll also be interesting true. 20 years from now when people think back of the great pandemic of 2020, mm-hmm. you know, do they think that it was, you know, how, how they kind of rec- recollect and reflect on that. That is all excellent. Let's move on to the coronavirus itself and how it figures into this problem of natural evil. I'll, I'll be honest and, and say, tip my own hand here, I don't think there's a big issue specifically with coronavirus. I'd like to contrast it as we talk with the Spanish flu from 100 years ago, which killed like mostly children. And I do think there's sort of like a moral difference. If we want to say there's a moral difference between viruses, that would be one way of thinking about it. This one kills largely older people, And some, of course, some people who are just immunocompromised, but people die of heart disease, they die of cancer, they die of all kinds of stuff. Like we're all going to die if a 80-year-old dies that would have lived to 92 because of a particular virus as opposed to because of a heat wave or as opposed to because of uh, something in their genetics that kicked in. You know, there's, there's maybe some difference, whereas Spanish flu, killing a bunch of kids, kids are more susceptible. These are people with their whole lives ahead of them cut short that we do often have a moral intuition that ending lives earlier has more moral weight uh, and and negativity darkness than ending them later uh, after many decades but i'm curious what your guys's takes are on this let's start with you sarah Yeah. So I hesitate to say anything about this because I recognize that people are experiencing immense levels of suffering personally, socially, um, economically, financially right now. And so I think anything I say, I want to be taken with that understanding. Yeah. I should have started (laughs) by saying something like that too. And I didn't. A huge disclaimer. (laughs) People are experiencing massive amounts of suffering right now. Um, So how we assess that suffering is a little bit, it feels a little bit crass at the moment, especially because we are still so right in the, right in the heat of this. Okay. So stepping back and comparing this is something like the Spanish flu. I, of course, experience the same sort of intuitive response when we um, start looking at like what sorts of populations are affected by a virus, right? So we have kids that are targeted in a way by the Spanish flu. Older people and people with underlying health conditions are kind of the target group of the coronavirus, although that is increasingly becoming not the case. So, you know, there, there are yeah. numbers that are 
suggesting that that is not as clear cut as it once was. At least youth seems to be a big protective factor. Like it is. It three is. three infants have died worldwide. Something like that. Sure. I mean, it's sure you know, but a lot more people under the age of fifty ha- are getting this That's and dying true. than we thought was going to be the case in the first weeks yes. of this. But even what we consider to be an appropriate age to live to is a, an ever shifting target. What if in fifty years or a hundred years people were routinely living to be two hundred and fifty? Then if you were to die at 70 or 80, that would be considered dying in your prime. So I I think we have to be careful about drawing these arbitrary lines between like childhood and and, and old age. Also, I mean, within any sort of theological framework we're talking about, elderly people are obviously going to be just as valuable in terms of like who is worth protecting and preserving, if not more so. I think it's probably something about our cultural obsession with youth that leads us to prioritize young lives over over older lives. Um, Older people are routinely and systematically prejudiced against within our culture. Their value is not recognized nearly as much as it used to be and and still is in in different um, cultures in in, in differently structured communities where elderly people actually play a vital role for the ongoing kind of flourishing of a community. Like in terms of age, identifying who should be considered uh, a reasonable kind of cost and who, who should be grieved more, I think is really, is really dangerous. So that's my initial uh, thought on the age question. Uh, but I'll may let Myra I, jump may in I, there. Yeah, of may course, I of course. at least defend myself for a second here? <laughs> I am not making any claims about who ought to be saved when we're choosing between lives. I'm saying from the perspective of when people when people have an intuition of like injustice over a death a, a child dying like a, a like childhood leukemia just seems like to most people like a worse outcome than you know prostate cancer in your 70s it's just most people go ah oh, jeez like that kid you know like so that that is all all i'm referring to is on the axis of the problem of evil Mm-hmm. The Spanish flu seems to have a harder it, making a worse case just in terms of like intuitions that people I, have about that. I will grant you that common intuitions will often lead people to feel more of an like a visceral sense of grief over a child dying than an older person. However, I also want to make a case for the amazing existential things that can happen in a, to a, in a person later in life. Every old person was a baby once, was cradled by its mother at one point, has gone through innumerable traumatic experiences in their lives, and at some level is still a little boy or a little girl inside. And they are still people who have hopes and dreams and regrets. You know, like I can imagine, for example, I can imagine a person who is, say, 75 years old. Um, has underlying health conditions, but is is starting to just experience like a deep hope in the life and, and feeling reconnected to their grandkids after having been estranged from their children for decades and is just feeling like they are re- entering a redemptive period of their lives. Now, if that person, that 75-year-old gets coronavirus and dies just before these this sort of like redemptive period can come to fruition, is that fair? Is that any less tragic than a five-year-old dying? I don't know. I'm not sure that it is. Someone dying at 75 with yeah. nothing but regret? Yeah, I for sure. I think that I am recognizing as I think about coronavirus over the last couple of months that in my sort of inventory of the world, I have existence as like a very high premium. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to get to that later because we're going to sort of talk about the the life is a gift response. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll save that. But there is, I mean, I totally hear you. And I hope to be a 75-year-old having my own private renaissance <laughs> 40 <laughs> years from now. And I can't wait. Just I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. My second prime. I'm just saying that in my moral inventory, like existence counts for a lot. And so to have a potential 80-year life that's cut off at age four is just in one aspect is a bigger deal than a potential 90 year life that's cut off at age 75. Okay. That's really helpful. I think that is, I think that, I think you identified exactly where our intuitions reach a fork in the road here. So my intuition is that existence itself is not nearly as important as sort of the quality of the suffering or the joy that is basically the, 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 um, phenomenological kind of quality of, of one's experience. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. That's, I'm really excited to get to that, but let's save it. Okay. So right. Myron, give you a chance here to talk about coronavirus or, or respond to anything we've said. Yeah. I think one one of the things that just kind of anecdotally or personally, as I've been witnessing different people respond to it uh, in different parts of the world, you know, seeing different ways in which uh, populations are being managed by their respective governments in different ways, things are organized, uh, engagements with, you know, the healthcare systems in different parts of the world and how that impacts day-to-day experience of the pandemic. One of the things that seems to me definitely part of the problem of evil, apart from just, you know, how many will lose their life tragically as a result of this pandemic, there's a whole layer of suffering that's experienced through the trauma that people connected to, you know, their own experience of of the pandemic. And that could be, it's not necessarily the 82-year-old who is dying in a care home, but the the family who wasn't even able to, to see them in their last days because of visitor protocols. Yeah, right. Um, and, and not being able to bring closure through the, all the standard rituals that we have when loved ones pass away because you can't have a gathering. I saw some, you know, I've been seeing some, some very thoughtful and moving posts from pastors who are trying to shepherd people through the pandemic and how to do funerals in a, in a COVID kind of era, era, right? And I think just kind of the, the psychological impacts of having to process stuff like this, we're only really... You know, we don't we don't really know what it's going to be like and how we're how we're going to be processing it. The way in which healthcare workers, you know, and and particularly in hot spots where they're having to essentially, you know, in, in battlefield kind of triage situations, yep. make these life or death decisions that will be with them for a long time and their families and the embedded social networks that they're a part of. I think. You know, one of the differences, I mean, I don't know the specific kind of history or way in, ways in which information was shared during the Spanish flu, but we have access 24-7 to multiple sources of information and yep. data and charts and graphs and curves and blogs and responses. And that has psychological impact on, on people as well, particularly how if you're, if you're prone to anxieties of different sorts, this is just really able to kind of fuel it in, in ways that are, are also should be part of the discussion of, of the pandemic and, and evil writ large, right? It's not mere as, as tragic and as, you know, any kind of, of untimely death is, but regardless of age, there's also the other impacts of, of the pandemic as well that are layered all th- through that. Yeah, there's there's something really interesting that I think you guys are kind of bringing into the discussion, which I want to both respect and also kind of move past <laughs> for the purposes of this conversation. So I think I started this coronavirus chapter a little cavalier because I was thinking purely in terms of 
what does it say to the problem of natural evil? How is it different than a tsunami, for instance, or something like that, which mm-hmm. would have all the same effects, just just slightly different ones. So you have mm-hmm. triage doctors in Indonesia making choices with limited resources. You have families torn apart. You have lives cut short. You have uh, economic devastation, right? So large scale natural disasters or small scale for smaller communities, all these consequences are so similar. I do think it's worth sitting with. I mean, this is sort of like a separate episode idea. It's worth sitting with the pain and not rushing to. Okay, so actually, let me connect this here before we move on. There is a connection here that I hadn't made before. So there is a kind of bad response to evil that happens in the world, suffering, that is overly triumphalistic too soon. So it will be like, and this is true when people die or people get cancer, you know, a lot, your, your aunt will say to you like, oh, that's so sad, but you know, God's in control. You need another angel, you know, fill it out, right? There's a hundred of these, uh, Sarah's making a gag face. <laughs> There's a hundred of these answers, right? And, and that is, uh, whether or not people realize that they are dealing with the cognitive dissonance of the problem of evil, of suffering with a truism, like a, a Christian trope that basically gets them out of having to think about it and feel it. And so in that sense, these are connected. Sarah, why don't you respond to that? Because then we're going to go to Myron for a couple points in a row. So I think what you're saying is that we should get off the topic of like how it's how we all feel about this and actually start talking about the stuff that really matters is like whether or not our <laughs> model of God should be changed based on our experience of suffering in a time of coronavirus. Oh, screw so, you. <laughs> no, I'm happy to do that. But I think, okay, one thing I will say though is that there is an interesting confluence here of moral evil and natural evil. Okay. So like when we're talking about something like a tsunami, that's obviously an instance of natural evil. You could you could actually say that humans have caused climate change and therefore that has had an But certainly impact, some tsunamis happen without climate right. change. Exactly. There's at least some examples. Earthquakes, exactly. right? Earthquakes are entirely tectonic. Right. They, there's no human cause. They, they also right. cause great devastation. Right. right. So one perhaps unique um, aspect of the coronavirus, maybe, maybe even more so than with the Spanish flu, is that we are witnessing the intersection of moral evil and natural evil in an extremely profound way. So who yeah, is being... Yeah. Who is being inordinately affected by this? Um, well, it's going to end up being people who don't have resources, right? So people who do not have health care, who do not have the ability to self-isolate because they're living in a slum filled with millions of people. Who started this thing? Jet-setting business people, traveling to and from you know con- wealthy country to wealthy country. That's probably who business. spread it initially, yeah. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah. But like, so who, you know, we're seeing the way that our global society impacts, or is sort of like yeah. interconnected with natural processes and natural evil. That's one thing. And then perhaps more importantly, the responses to that natural evil are having outsized impacts and or effects on the level of destruction. So governmental responses and things. I was just going to um, say, we should also, we should add in like China suppressing information yeah. uh, for, you know, I mean, eventually when the blame gets doled out, the, mm-hmm. the Chinese government will, will take the lion's share globally, you know, for basically suppressing information about this our president will take some blame in our own uh, mm-hmm. situation although neither of you guys are in america right now canada <laughs> and the uk but you know trump for his rea- his his super slow rolling reaction and denial for a month and a half or so that will cost something bolsonaro in in brazil mm-hmm. whatever so there's leaders and institutions mm-hmm. and individuals who their moral evil is compounding the natural suffering right 
Right. So that is really interesting. It is it is a it is really a both and kind of situation. I hadn't thought of it that way. But it is also, I think, interconnected with these levels of suffering that we have. So Myron was getting at this as well. So like there are, it is, yeah, okay, people are getting sick and dying. There are also immense like psychological sufferings that are happening because of people's predispositions to various mental illnesses or um, addictions or and then you can think about even things like women in abusive relationships like do you, right. can you imagine being in self-isolation if you're in an abusive relationship right now that kind of thing and then the, the, i think one of the problems or one of the difficulties in this, something like coronavirus is that we see intense levels of like obvious suffering where it's like okay children are dying or something like that and it makes us want to undervalue or downplay other forms of suffering that are also very real for the people that are experiencing them so we have this like high hierarchy of pain that we think that we must adhere to at all times or it's like I can't say anything about my own like private little suffering if it's not comparable to somebody who's just lost a child and it's like not that's not how human beings work right like even like the small impacts because for example um, I'm here in the UK and so I'm pregnant right now and there's the UK has been really narrowing the the sorts of um, options that you have for giving birth so you can no longer have like a doula with you when you're giving birth. You can no longer have a home birth. So basically, and, and if, you're, if your partner is sick, you can't, your partner can't be there. So it's like there are restrictions around the sort of ways that you can give birth. Now, this is like a really small first world problem that women here are dealing with, but it is a sort of like level of like a minute suffering that people are experiencing in various forms, millions of various forms to varying degrees across the world. And this is all tied up in this darn pandemic. And it's it's hard to distinguish between sort of like what's actually the virus and what is also, what is a, what is a societal response to the virus. It's all yep. getting messed up into one big con polluted thing. It's hard to differentiate moral evil and, and, and natural evil at this point. And something that's not as clear now in April when we're recording this, but that if I had to guess six months from now, that will be the case, depending on how much warm or tropical weather is pro- a protective against this virus, it may end up ravaging the Southern Hemisphere in a way that it, we haven't seen in the North, mm-hmm. um, just with far less medical infrastructure and, you know, yada, 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 and revealing kind of global inequities that are sort of moral evils that are made by a lot of human choices and greed uh, and unfettered capitalism and stuff like that. Myron, why don't you get in here? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, one thing that you said earlier, Dan, as you were kind of setting up this point, you know, different types of ways that, that people kind of automatically fill in the space of reasons to try and make sense of everything. And I think that, I mean, it's a very natural disposition for people to have, particularly people of faith for whom everything has to kind of fit somewhere in God's economy. And what crisis does is it exposes kind of the fault lines within your own theology or value system to kind of reveal, you kind of cling to, to what you know. You know, the, the Christian tradition, particularly in, in 20th century philosophy of religion uh, and into the, the present day, you know, this this idea that, well, in order to properly respond to the problem of evil, you either have to have uh, a sense of what God's reasons might be for allowing these things. And, you know, you kind of help yourself to different strategies to try and articulate what those reasons are. Uh, or the other kind of main way of handling it to say as well, 
we know that the pandemic isn't gratuitous evil, and we know this, you know, but this is by the way to kind of, to kind of flesh out the model. Uh, we know this because God wouldn't allow gratuitous evil, so, so God must have a reason. But for people who are kind of more skeptical about their ability to know what God's reasons are going to be, they're going to say that we shouldn't expect to know what they are. Right. So this kind of you know, strategy known as skeptical theism is going to be more attractive to someone who says, well, God must have reasons for allowing these things and setting up the world in, in this way. But we just don't know what those reasons are. We shouldn't expect to know what they are. Uh, and we just need to do our best to kind of manage them as, as best we can. And that's kind of a, a way of, of handling what any kind of evidential force, you know, this kind of suffering would, would have. Myron, you're bringing up a kind of a a nuanced and theologically rich version of saying, well, God's in control, but there's also like, and and some people will, would give that response. So someone's recording a podcast right now and they have a a theology that, that rings or rates God's sovereignty higher than, than mine does. And they're presenting that argument, but nine, 99 times out of a hundred, when someone hears or sees a comment on a Facebook thread, that God's in control, God's got this, you know, this virus, this pandemic. It's a, it's a more kind of lay version of that. I want to, first of all, I want to get people off the hook a little bit. I think that a lot of times when people say something like that, it just is like an expression of their faithfulness. That they, what they're really saying is like, I've been through all kinds of shit in my life and God's still faithful to me. I still experience God in worship. I still experience God's blessing in my life. And so I'm just going to share this because this is how I have processed things. I think there's no problem with that. But then, as we mentioned earlier, there are someone might say the exact same thing. And what they're really doing is just managing their anxiety over something that they don't know how to explain. And that causes them cognitive dissonance. And one thing that you brought up uh, in an earlier Facebook message is there's an angle here of post hoc rationalizations of some some of the things that we say, a lot of the things that we say, we don't say them, we don't believe them and consequently say them because we have all these great reasons, like the aforementioned sovereignty theologian in, in the uh, podcast that's going on somewhere in the world right now. We actually are just kind of saying things, like our inner lawyer, as Jonathan Haidt would call it, is saying things that get us off the hook. And so I, I wonder what you wanted to say about this post hoc rationalizations angle. Uh, sure. Can we uh, can we go dual processing for a second? Can we? Sure. Of... Yeah. Get us there. So system one, system two, rider, elephant, all that stuff. You got it. So if we think about our cognitive life is structured into two kind of broad types of, of systems or, or processes, uh, the language that cognitive psychologists use uh, is to say that, well, we've got kind of uh, a whole set of processes that are, are quick and automatic and intuitive, uh, and they generate cognitive content to us. Uh, in ways that are kind of largely pre-reflective. They kind of happen. Uh, they do heavy lifting for us. They help us kind of navigate our space. Uh, and when we have kind of immediate emotional responses or automatic responses to all sorts of things, it's it's coming out of, out of system one. Shortcuts, uh, heuristics, other right. words for it. When yeah. I walk into a room, I don't have to go, what are all these paper things on a shelf? I go, oh, that's a bunch of books. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do any work to like remember what books are like or when I'm driving a car, I don't have to be like, wait, if I turn it this way, which way do the wheels go? It's automatic. It saves me immense energy to just be able to go through life 
and not have to sort of figure everything out fresh, right? For sure. And, and you know, you're looking at your, your computer screen right now and you're seeing kind of different faces, you know, via the magic of Zoom. Right. And you don't have to, to do a lot of kind of sitting down and thinking to interpret what it is that you're seeing. You automatically see a face. You see a happy face, sad face, whatever it is you're seeing. And you're processing information in a very quick and automatic way that says you're dealing with other people here, right? So, so system one. System two, on the other hand, is more uh, reflective, it takes a little bit uh, more cognitive effort to kind of work through. This is the space of, of reasons where we uh, slow down, we think, we analyze ideas, we try and look for arguments to kind of support claims, we consider whether something is true, uh, and we're more patient and reflective. Uh, and in, in one way, you might think that, well, the problem of evil uh, is really a system two kind of problem, because that's where uh, a person is, might, you know, is, is, possibly slowing down to think about the way in which their experience of suffering connects to other things that they think are true about the world. And we want to, you know, draw inferences about what God is like based on what we experience. It's a very natural thing. One of the attractions of the religious life is that it is a, a, a matrix by which we can make meaning of our world, right? And and so when things kind of seem to call certain aspects of it into question, uh, you know, that's kind of when we're, we're thinking about it. And I think one way of dealing with or understanding that super quick response where someone says, well, God's got this, it's uh, a, a discomfort with that cognitive dissonance that resides in system two and is just a flight to read off uh, intuitions that we've had developed through our own kind of emotional responses to, to belief in God's, right? And So to and- understand that, um, just so I understand you, at that moment, we're having cognitive dissonance in our system two processing in our slower, deliberative, rational processing. But system one has some ready-made slogans for us that we have already stored for other reasons. Like I Mm -hmm. said, someone's just like, this has been my experience or someone I respect has said this before and I heard them say it and I will now repeat it without having to really work through what it all means. Right. Is that what we're talking about? I think that's right. And and it might not even be actual cognitive dissonance. It might just be the opportunity of potential cognitive dissonance. And we're not even willing to go there and just kind of fly back to to some of the uh, intuitive reasons, you know, And, and there's kind of at least within the cognitive science of religion, there's this claim that there's kind of a, a roughly similar underlying kind of cognitive architecture that we have as a species that processes the religious life, right? Um, And that gets tuned differently through culture and all sorts of other experiences. But the idea is that there's a sense in which we have common minds that engage, engage the religious life. And that largely a lot of what happens at the level of reflection is driven by what happens at the level of intuition and, and emotion. And when you get pressed in real time to deal with, you know, situations as they arise, we default to, to automatic processing. Yeah, that's really good. And, and it helps to give some language to sort of what I introed that section with that sometimes people are just being well-meaning. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people have really thought about this and they're like, no, 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 God really is in control. I can present to you my reasons for that. That may or may not comfort you, but helping ourselves to kind of like let people off the hook a little bit. Sometimes I read Facebook comments, like I'm talking about in the, you have permission Facebook group, or I'm also members of a couple other of these sort of former evangelical groups, partly as market research, frankly, to just, <laughs> I mean, really, just to see what kind of is being discussed. And a lot of times people will post things out of their frustration. That's like, how can all my friends and relatives 
say this thing that is such bad theology or whatever. And sometimes it's like, well, they're, they, it's not the, I mean, it is theology, but it's not for them. They're just like, this is a phrase I know that people I like use in these circumstances. It's mm-hmm. not, they're not making an argument that like God really chose to kill all the babies in the Holocaust. Like that's not, they're not sort of marshalling that philosophical claim. They're just saying a thing that they've heard people say. Sarah, can you get in on this? Uh... Yeah, and don't you think also that it's not always just a matter of cognitive dissonance and it's not always just a matter of people hearing, like parroting what they've heard other people say, but sometimes people have experiences that seem to not agree with each other, right? So you can imagine that. So so one of the one of my like, favorite here's sarah talking about experience again (laughs) no 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 no. so (laughs) so one of my favorite one of my favorite things to hate is the line um everything happens for a reason okay yeah everything happens for a reason almost no one actually believes that everything happens for like a divine reason which is what is usually behind that statement right it's like everything happens for a reason no one actually believes that right Like, like when you break that down unless you are like the most hardcore determinist and are like willing to like reject free will altogether okay yeah but when you like dig into what's going on underneath a statement like everything happens for a reason, what you often find is that people are having different, ex- like they're having parallel experiences. Like they are experiencing God's faithfulness in their lives. They are experiencing love and community and purpose and hope and all these things. At the same time, they are experiencing death. And like at, they themselves are also experiencing like pain in some like very like visceral way and they're trying to marry these experiences together so it's not just that they're having like the like second order like reflection thing going on they're also having these, these deeply emotional and visceral experiences that are both very felt and seem to not agree with each other and they're trying to make sense out of these experiences that don't seem to be congruent that's yes that, that's kind of like a that's a deeper kind of a dissonance. It's, it's maybe mm-hmm. we might call it like emotional dissonance yes, or exactly. uh, life values dissonance or something, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, Myron, is there, are you aware of sort of literature uh, on like, are there, is there terminology for that uh, from in cognitive science of religion stuff? Um, or are we just bringing in another angle here? Well, so, so one of the terms from uh, cognitive science of religion that's, that's salient here is the term theological incorrectness. Uh, and basically, it's this idea that, uh, so suppose, you know, you have a fairly fleshed out theological framework for understanding your own experience and for navigating the world. Uh, this has been formed. It's been, you know, there's all sorts of cultural scaffolding in place to kind of help you figure out what you should believe and what you what you might reflectively say you believe when it comes to experiencing uh, uh, immense suffering. You might give the, be able to give uh, the correct kind of theological answer, you know, if you're posed with the question. But yeah. in, in t- and, and that's that's a system two kind of response. But there's very interesting kind of research to show that in real time situation, you default to kind of what what is kind of latent uh, in there in, in system one. And I think Sarah raises an interesting point to say that, you know, those, those emotional experiences, there might be, there might even be dissonance at the level of, of system one, where you've got different kinds of emotional responses or automatic responses that get triggered in different kinds of circumstances that themselves might be incorrect. And so, so what pathway you take from system two to system one to give the theological incorrect answer uh, is going to be, you know, maybe dependent on, on other factors, but, and, and there are some theological concepts 
concepts that are hard to to really embed in a very natural and automatic way. It takes a lot of time and, and practice, for example. We have lots of, you know, reasons to be engaged in kind of an exchange type of culture, right? And so tit for tat is is uh, has kind of a cognitive kind of naturalness to it. And so this idea of a, of, a, of a loving God who acts in grace and doesn't demand anything in return makes you might be able to tell yourself a good story in system two that makes sense to it, but it's really hard to kind of embed that into our natural kind of cognitive processes. We can, and you know, yeah. lots of research to show that that you can kind of tune your intuitions in certain ways uh, over time. It just takes takes work, and so all of those kind of things are, are part of the the both the cognitive and philosophical and theological background as we as we. Uh, experience uh, widespread uh, and global, you know, ex- experience of suffering that we are. Just to kind of embed this into memoir a little bit, like the last 10 minutes or so of our conversation is like a perfect example of why I'm now studying psychology instead of theology. Mm-hmm. Like getting to a point where I think what I would have needed two or three years ago, maybe five, I don't remember when I read uh, Righteous Mind and I went down this other road. What I would have need, what I think I would have needed to say in 2014 or so, something like that, is like, oh yeah, people are really arguing about theology. They are using their language more or less accurately to explain their beliefs and commitments. And so, wh- where we need to engage is at the level of those arguments. That's what I would have, and I like. Obviously, I like living there. We're doing that now. People are capable of bringing out their arguments and engaging with them. Uh, philosophers and theologians exist, but that's not what's going on all that often. And so if I want to understand my human experience in the broader world, when I am not with my theologian or philosopher friends, I actually need a different set of tools that shows me what they're really doing or, or I don't know. It's, I found the explanations, for instance, like once I learned from you, Myron, less than a year ago about cognitive science of religion, when we went to AAR in November, I went to all those, you know, I went to every one of those sessions because, oh, yeah, OK, this is like a, a clearer angle. This is a better explanatory rubric for what I'm seeing in the world to think about, you know, the, the processes that are really that are better explanations. Basically, I, I'm kind of repeating myself. You want to add anything, Sarah? I just wanted to say that I completely agree with that. And I think that theologians, I won't speak for philosophers, but I do think that theologians by and large are the most unreliable narrators of why they believe what they believe. I think that there's a level of self-awareness and self-reflection that is just unavailable to most people who are working professionally within theology. And uh, yeah. So wow. I think you have, you, have, you have made a very good life choice in going into psychology. Shots <laughs> fired thought uh, that you went from psych- from theology to psychology just for the money. <laughs> well, I do want to have a job, but I don't think it's maybe quite as bleak, Sarah, as you're saying. I think that I'm, for instance, encountering plenty of theologians like the two of you, or I know Myron, you're a philosopher, and, and friends of ours who are like, oh, let's take this psychology stuff really seriously and put it into conversation. You could, of course, describe God through the lens of human experience, which is what a lot of your work does, Sarah. That's what Schleiermacher's work did, right? So that's that's a sort of an inherently psychological angle. So it's not all doom and gloom. We don't have to stop talking about God. 
because we want to because we want but, better I mean, answers. But you are raising sort of like the important question here, which is like to what extent should our experience of suffering or anything else be allowed to impact or or, or shape the way that we think about God? Because usually yeah. what happens, especially within something more traditional like systematic theology, is that you have people who have a received tradition. They have a, a, a version of God that they are committed to for various reasons, that, of which most of them may not be completely aware of the full range of those reasons that they have committed to this particular received tradition. And, 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 and what happens is that you, you have people arguing from a static version of God to a sort of uh, theodicy, which is what we call um, sort of explanations or justifications for why God would allow suffering in the world, rather than allowing the experience of suffering to influence or impact the way they think about God. So there's a sort of a, a different direction in the relationship of that theologizing takes from person to person. Yeah, it's sort of like, I think of a phrase like theology after Auschwitz. I, I've seen that written places. There, There's a kind of, um, and it's more pronounced in Europe than it is in, in the States, for instance, in Canada, because we didn't have the same visceral experience of World War II. I mean, you can even see it in mid-century theology in the States and Europe differently. But there's a kind of like a willingness uh, that I increasingly think people need to have to, to take the, the deepest forms of suffering of our modern experience or our personal lives or whatever, and and really let that have a seat at the table as opposed to being sort of pre-committed to a God who makes us not have to do that, basically. Myron? Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, theology changes even within a tradition. It changes over time as the lived experience of people shapes what we articulate in theological reflection. And you can use the different types of metaphors, you know, uh, either a theology from above, which is kind of what, you know, that, that one kind of version that Sarah was articulating about, you know, starting with kind of a, a, a set of systematic kind of doctrines that, you know, you then impose to kind of make experience kind of fit within that. Or you can talk about a the theology from below where you take, as you just said, Dan, the data of the lived experience of suffering seriously. You just kind of sit with that for a little bit and, and see kind of what, what emerges out of that. Um, and I think that, you know, whether it's dealing with different, uh, different minority groups, sexual minorities, racial groups, other people, uh, any kinds of, of outsiders or people who are othered by uh, society at large or, or the Christian kind of mainstream in particular, um, you know, you can, you can rationalize away the lived experience of the suffering of other people if you're not encountering them or letting, letting that uh, interaction with the other uh, really shape kind of what you think is true, both theologically and, and personally. Well, that's interesting. I don't think I've ever made that connection in my own mind between a kind of a, a theology rooted in suffering, so-called contextual theologies, feminist theology, you know, liberation theology, etc., coming at it from these other angles. But there, there are a lot of shared, shared bits there. Let's take a break, come back and start talking about some possible solutions that have been offered or that we might want to offer to the problem of natural evil. If you've been listening to the show, you know that we have a Patreon campaign where people can support the show financially and get access to a Facebook group that is for patrons only, as well as at least two, but I think soon to be more, uh, exclusive episodes only for patrons. Just this past week, we released one, another one uh, of the I Don't Believe in That God series, this time with comedian and podcaster Red Scott. 
Those are long-form conversations between me and someone who does not consider themselves theist or religious, and we talk through it. I hear their story. We talk through where we agree, where we disagree, what kind of a God is it that they don't, in fact, believe in. Uh, And I'm always curious if I believe in that God or if I don't believe in that God either. Um, And again, we found some really interesting common ground and had a fantastic conversation. So if you'd like to be a part of the Patreon community, you can go to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. It's $5 a month, but there is a sliding scale. So if money is tight right now, and I imagine for a lot of you, given the pandemic, money is quite tight. Uh, if you're currently furloughed or unemployed or whatever, but you'd really like access to that Facebook group, that support group, and these uh, extra episodes, then email me and ask me about the sliding scale. Uh, no listener left behind. Uh, that email address is you have permission podcast at gmail.com. All those links are in the show notes. Okay, let's get back to the episode. So let's start with a softball here. Whoever wants to take this one can. Uh, This is what I think is the worst all-time solution to the problem of natural evil, which is to basically collapse it under the problem of moral evil by saying it is a result of the fall. So there was no natural evil until we sinned. There's no death. Humans sin, then tigers start eating rabbits. So it's all on us. It's tidy from a certain reading of the text, but... Uh, we're going to so who wants to go who wants to uh, demolish the uh the, the easy bad argument well, like evolution and time yeah yeah so no <laughs> i mean basically like in order for the world to have evolved and human species or animal species of all forms to have evolved in the way that they did like death and destruction and bloodshed would have had to have been like a part of that process from like the beginning it's built into the way our world is and works Myron, do you want to? I think in, in on one kind of analysis, it just makes the problem one step further back because you might say, well, you know, how and in, in you know, why is it that God kind of set things up in in this way to allow agents to have that that power, or at least to set up the natural world in such a way right. where human agency can can you could know, affect it so strongly. Could, could, yep. Yeah, I was I was going to say fuck it up in that in such ways, but yeah. I decided I decided not to, and then you but, decided um, to. Well, so I'm actually, I pulled this uh, bad answer from Jim Stump, our friend at BioLogos. He wrote quite a good, from their angle, article about coronavirus and the problem of natural evil, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. Hmm. Let's move on to a better. So now I have, I believe I have three or four better solutions that we'll kind of talk through. And then after that, we're going to get into um, this NT Wright article that's been going around Uh, And Tom Ord, our other theologian friend, his response to that. So the first of the better responses is the idea of cooperation and what's sometimes called soul making. The idea that what we do here on earth in our cooperation with God turns us into a kind of person, our overcoming of obstacles, our living in a sort of a finite world with, with imperfect results turns us into different kinds of beings, the kind of beings that either can enjoy heaven or at least in the here and now can sort of be in relationship with God. Who'd like to to talk about this a bit? 
So this is a view that you're you're kind of inclined towards accepting, or you see some merit in it. Is that certainly is that more merit than the fall? I, I <laughs> this one there's an in, there's an intuitive value to this to me because I I do think that for instance having gone through infertility, which I think we're gonna maybe, this will maybe come up when we when we talk about the life is a gift option, but having gone through infertility and now having a one month old son. I do. I appreciate him differently having gone through it. Now, I don't know that I would like choose the whole, you know, package again, but it's not nothing. It didn't give me nothing that I went through that. And my experience with him will be different and I think will be better. I think that he will have a better life for our valuing him so much or certainly possible that he could have a better life. That's a, a very tiny little you know, lens on just our nuclear family. But so there's something to it, at least. I don't know that it solves everything, but yeah, that you, you picked up on that correctly. I think, um, and maybe just to kind of put these two, the two kind of responses that we've looked at before or that we're looking at just right now. Um, and this is, you know, related to stuff that Sarah said, but, you know, how we process particular experiences you know, we're going to feel a certain kind of pressure to to bring a, a model of God to light or to bear on those particular experiences, uh, and 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 those particular experiences can kind of recursively, you know, shape what what we think God is like. Uh, not to defend the uh, natural evils a part of the fall view too vigorously, but it's it's an example, I think, of the kind of theological pretzels that people can find themselves in, or the or the you know the theological corners that people find themselves having to to paint themselves in when you have a very strong view of what it means for God to be sovereignly in control and to have a particular view of God's character. And then you kind of wind up being forced to say things like, "Well, it must be our fault, right? It must be human. It must be you know," and, and to kind of embed that within a particular notion of of original sin and other sorts of of, of things. So, so if you start with a, a certain set of assumptions and a few, you know, moves that seem plausible from within the system, that's kind of where where you wind where you wind up. I, I think on on this idea that um, you know our experience of of suffering is a way to kind of fit us for heaven, right? So Irenaeus had uh, this idea of soul making or a soul making theodicy, and and I think there's two different ways to to kind of look at it. Like one, you know, if you're if you're really offering a, a soul making theodicy. Right. Then what you're committed to is saying that the this is the reason that God had in view for allowing us. And this is why God remains just, even though we experience all these horrific things. The reason is that we needed to go through this kind of suffering to have some kind of preferred future life uh, at the eschaton. That's kind of an instance of everything happens for a reason. And the reason is just to make us better. And then what you do get sometimes in the moment, you get people pointing out, you see, oh, this good thing couldn't have happened or I couldn't have, you know, gotten, you know, unless I would have gone through this, this, uh, this, this terrible kind of experience. And and I think we want to distinguish that kind of response, you know, seeing soul making as a theodicy with uh, a different kind of aspect, which is to say there there may or may not be a reason. There might not even be make sense to talk about what reasons. But one thing I can make an observation of is that though I would not have chosen this, I can see how some particular experience has benefited me in a certain way. Right. It's yeah. one thing to make an observation that that you've, you know, regardless of whether you think that's the reason for it or that justifies it or, yeah. you know, I, I couldn't have gotten that moral improvement uh, in in any other way. Um, you can be silent on those issues and still acknowledge the fact that sometimes we do 
get refined in, in morally significant ways through the experience of bad things. Yeah. So I definitely would not want to go all the way to the Iranian soul making like argument. We You mentioned earlier uh, skeptical theism, which is an approach that may, maybe we should talk about that as as one of the options as well. The idea being that, well, we might not think that our minds are particularly well attuned to understand God's reasons for things like allowing suffering. I actually think that there are some as a real problem with skeptical theism in that it's not clear where that would stop. So would you have any reasons for understanding anything that God would do? For instance, wanting to be in loving relationship with humanity or something like that. Like, why do you have any access to any of that? But then on the other end of the spectrum is sort of like the opposite of skeptical theism, which is the soul making view, which is like, no, we know exactly why God would want to allow all this suffering. It's so that we could appreciate heaven. And I, I want to be in between those two ends of that particular continuum because Iranius seems like hubris and skeptical theism seems like passing the buck sort of or uh, kicking, so, kicking the can down the road. So certainly people do uh, raise that objection against skeptical theism in the sense that it's, well, it's not taking the problem seriously. It's kind of passing the buck. Or they'll point out all these other skeptical consequences that might seem to follow. I guess, I, you know, I am not persuaded at all by any worries about it's going to lead to other skeptical consequences. Because if that's our epistemic situation, I mean, if, if we are so cognitively limited in this way, then we just got to deal with it. Right. Then we might we might want and wish and hope for better cognitive equipment to understand God's reasons, whatever they may be. But if we don't got it, we don't got it. And so we just got to deal. Right. And, and so the fact that it might lead to other kind of skeptical consequences is not, you know, that's 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 not a. A significant kind of worry for me. I think the more seriously, you know, the charge of like, well, if, if you're going to hide behind, you know, cognitive gap between creatures and creator, you're not really taking it seriously. I think that there are, are you know, that you need to kind of think, think through the implications of that. So. Yeah, well, we will have to have that skeptical theism conversation another time. Sarah, do you want to hop in here or should we go yeah. to the next response? So my response here would actually probably touch on uh, the skeptical theism response as well. Um, I, I'm not, I don't find the soul-making argument particularly compelling, mostly because I think that there's a huge difference. This is also what Myron was saying. There's a huge difference between recognizing that you can allow something to have redemptive value in your life after the fact without actually saying that it had to happen that way. I mean, this is what we all do. We all make sense of our, our lives and our, our narratives and our stories. And, and try to bring the best possible outcome we can out of really crappy situations. I mean, that is completely different than saying that those things had to happen in order for us to become the people that we are. And it's also really, when you, when you start getting into the details of what you're actually saying when you're talking about a soul-making argument, it becomes very fuzzy. So are you saying that all suffering ever that occurs in your life is a direct result of God's wanting you to become a better person? Probably not. So you, you have to kind of tease apart exactly what sorts of suffering you're talking about. What is caused by God and what is not caused by God? What is caused by other people? What is caused by nature just doing what nature does? And so again, we get back to the subjectivity lens where we tend to like pick out out certain things and say, oh, God brought that into my life. God brought cancer into my life so that I would become a better person or would be, you know, I would, I would evolve in some way spiritually. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's an important, important distinctions that need to be made there. Um, I also, and Dan, I've, I, I think I've, I've uh, shared this with you before. I do find uh, Wesley Wildman's 
arguments about this to be particularly compelling. He has a very good article um, that's available on his website called Incongruous Goodness, Perilous Beauty, Disconcerting Truth, Ultimate Reality and Suffering in Nature. And it's very good because he goes through and he sort of categorizes different responses to the problem of suffering and kind of links them to different views of God. And one thing that he defends in that article is sort of what we can call the argument from neglect. And he he defends an analogy with human parenting, right? And so um, his, you know, his main, his main idea here is that a human parent would never intentionally harm their child to make them a better person. There might be circumstances in which pain necessarily occurs, but a good parent, a good parent will always attempt to minimize the amount of suffering that their child experiences. And um, of course, there are all sorts of philosophical and theological arguments about why this analogy might not hold between God and people as it does between humans and their children. But he wants to make a case that yes, the analogy does hold and that God should be at least as loving and good as understood by humans, because that's where our understanding of love comes from, is from God, that humans should be, um, God should be at least as good and loving as human parents. And so to the extent that the analogy holds and that God is can be considered to be a loving parent, then to say that God directly causes intense suffering and gratuitous suffering and pain within human lives and communities is to say something that we would never allow within a human family. Myron? So, um, uh, Bill Rowe also talks about a parent human parent kind of analogy with with God and creature, and he uh, you know deals with this, this certain kind of view, which is to, in in some theological quarters, people will you know appeal to the the human kind of infant gap, the cognitive gap that exists between let's say a a six month right, old right. you know and and a, a parent who is you know holding the child for a vaccination or some kind of some kind of claim, and the child can't understand right and and so this is sometimes appealed to as a defense of the way in which God might be thought to deal with creatures to say you know we we are like the six month old who can't understand what our parent is doing and there's some some kind of cognitive gap there right but Rose's response to it is to say. And very much along the lines of, of uh, what you're saying uh, uh, Wildman is doing, is that uh, at least in the human parent case, uh, the parent is going to be physically present and able to provide at least some assurance that it, to, the, to the degree that they're able, that they are there and alongside them and with them, you know, and offering as much kind of comfort as you can. And what you what you see all too often, sadly, is that humans experience suffering and there is no sense of God's presence through that time in ways that you would expect in good human parents. It's partly too, there's a similar kind of response to uh, the, the soul making argument as well, which is to say, unfortunately, you see so many experiences of people for whom suffering doesn't refine their lives, but it just destroys it, right? And, and it's hard to see how uh, the shattered life of someone who has had just a really terrible existence uh, is is now somehow going to be able to kind of fit them for for heaven in a particular way. One other little problem with the infant adult cognition argument is that uh, what actually is going on with an infant versus an adult is, is just time. Like they eventually will develop the skills that the adult has. Like it's not that their cognition is like fundamentally limited by the kind of cognition it is. It's just not developed yet. And so that doesn't actually seem to be a good sort of analogy between a creature with a with a meat brain you know, that evolved on earth and the type of entity that creates universes. Like that's just, it actually doesn't seem to be a good analogy anyway there, but let's move on. 
it, it strikes me that I need I have to throw another answer in here that I didn't initially put on our little outline, which is the best of all possible worlds response. So this is a rationalists, you know, Leibniz, etc., cetera, uh, sort of 17th ish century kind of response. Again, pre-Darwin, which is worth noting. Also worth noting, Irenaeus is pre-Darwin. And I think the soul, the true soul making argument makes more sense in a pre-evolutionary world <laughs> than it does. Like you just you have better ways out with evolution than before you, you have that. So Leibniz and, and other people who have picked up on this, the idea, as I understand it, Myron, we'll start with you since you're a philosopher, is that God is all good, is good and thoroughly good. And therefore, God would never create any kind of a world that wasn't the best possible one that God could create. And since we know that God is good, fill that in however you want. We uh, know that this is the best world. And so whatever seems bad to us, it could not have been any better by virtue of God's character. Did, did I get that right? Yeah. So certainly Leibniz is operating with a, a strongly kind of version of theological determinism. Uh, a shorthand way of kind of describing his argument is, is very similar to what you did is to say, well, look, if, if God's going to create any world, uh, that world would have to be the best possible world, a uh, best logically possible world. And God did create the world. So this must be the best possible. And you might think, well, why, why if God creates a world, would it have to be the best possible world? And for Leibniz, um, God would know what the best is. And because God is perfectly good, God would want to create the best. Uh, and so the, the world that God would create must be the best logically possible. And then you might ask, well, what, well, what if there is no best? What if for every possible world that, and by possible world, we just mean a total and complete way that things could be, right? And you might think that there is the way that things happen to have turned out, but you might think that things could have turned out differently uh, and let's just imagine those kind of scenarios. And if you think that, you know, different ways that things could turn out could have a, a certain value to them, that there might be some some ways that things could have turned out that are actually better than the way things did, you might say, well, why didn't God create that world? And so for Leibniz, the idea that there, you know, for every possible way that things could be, there's a better way, doesn't make any sense. Because if that were the, if that were the case, God would not have any reason to pick one world over the other. Because for every world that God would contemplate creating, there's a better one that, he, that, yep. that God could have created God would instead. think of a better one, well, right. Well, right. And, and so, uh, and, and so if, if it were just kind of an, an infinite you know, progress of possible ways things could turn out, God would be like you know, stuck in a decision-making loop, unable to choose which one, because God would not have a sufficient reason for picking one over another one. For Leibniz, that that's an impossible kind of scenario. Sarah is chomping at the bit. Please respond. I can see her just no, waiting. It's okay. I'm just shaking my head over here. I mean, this is, is really is fascinating for me sometimes to listen to the philosophical kind of uh, debates about whether or not God has created the best possible world or not. Uh, no, I mean, my response to this is, is really quite simple. It's just that it is um, to, to, to argue with Leibniz is to sort of start with a, a very particular version of God and then to just choose to view the world through that lens of your version of God that you've already committed yourself to. And that seems to be blatantly um, incongruent with the actual reality and the contingency and specifically the contingency of the evolved natural world. Like we just know that the things could have been different. Things could have been different. Like there is, that is like what natural selection is. That is what the evolutionary process is. It is an entirely contingent process. Unless you want to say that God is, is, is determining at a microscopic level, every single 
kind of genetic mutation and in, in evolutionary adaptation in nature, which most people wouldn't say, but it's a, it's a ground up versus a, a top-down sort of perspective. Let's see if we could do this in just a few minutes here, because there is something really interesting here, because there is a kind of a determinism that you still in, you encounter with a lot of atheists who robustly defend evolution and all of that. And, and they want to say, no, Sarah, in fact, at the moment of the Big Bang, yeah. Even though there is, quote, random mutation, that's probably like algorithmic randomness in such a way that like, or maybe, sure, some slight mutations would be different, but the environment is what shapes natural selection. And the environment was going to be such and such because of the quantities of these chemicals at the Big Bang, whatever, right? You can, you go all the way back to, to T0, the moment right. of the bang or T1 or whatever. So, I, you know, I'm with you that I, I do think there's indeterminacy in sort of the biological record uh, and how things might have gone. Mm -hmm. But a lot of non-theists and, and theists would have a problem with that. Myron, what, what do you do you want to wade into that? Not up on the most recent literature, but I, my understanding Neither is I. that there are... <laughs> That's, don't you can always don't, assume that. Let us not let, let us not let that stop us from just you know saying uh, shit. Yeah, it doesn't stop me week after week. <laughs> I think that uh, my understanding is that there's different responses among evolutionary biologists to the question of uh, what happens if what what, were, what would happen if you rewound the tape. Right, right, that's true. And so, would would evolution proceed pretty much as we see it, uh, or would things? Is it possible for there to, to for evolution to proceed in ways if you were to rewind the tape that would be much different than the evolved you know, yeah. speciation and, and the things that we actually see. And I, and I think that there, there are different views about that. Uh, and so, you know, at, at the level of just evolutionary biology, you might think that, that things could turn out differently. Now, now, I mean, in Leibniz's defense, he would say that, oh, sure, things could have been different in one kind of sense of could. They just couldn't be better. And there's an interesting objection that was raised against Leibniz uh, in his own time, namely uh, that he's just presenting some kind of fatalistic determinism where God really isn't free and that he's not accounting for the fact that things could have been different. Interesting. And, and I think he's okay with, with some kind of, you know, fatalistic view if God is of a certain character. Well, that's, that's really interesting because that's going to come back around when we discuss Tom Ord's view of, of uh, right. essential kenosis, that God is bound by God's nature and God is not free in a certain sense to do the kinds of things that we often want to say God can do. Sarah, let's, let's go to you for this next one. And, and speaking of evolution uh, and indeterminacy, this is uh, a response that Jim offers Jim Stump in his biologos article that we're linking to. And he brings up the example of uh, earthquakes and tectonic plates. Tectonic plates cause earthquakes, which cause immense suffering. But he says that life as we know it, on Earth would not exist without tectonic activity. It produces all this heat, uh, which produces soil, and then that soil. You know, I'm I'm not really a scientist, but you know, stuff fill it in, fill in the gaps. And he also says, and here's a quote from his article: "Also, life as we know it would not exist without viruses. That viruses have a they play a check role on bacteria. So mm -hmm. without viruses, bacteria like the whole world would just be full of bacteria. And so you know, there's there's something about the delicate balance of physical stuff mm -hmm. on the earth that makes our life possible. 
yes to all of that. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, I, I'm probably going to be the worst possible theological defender of God on the, on this one. Um, no, it, it is just true that like the world, for the world to be as it is, um, there has to be processes that cause immense suffering and pain for humans uh, and for other species at different levels of right, the natural too, world. Yeah. Um, but again, I do think this raises an important point here that like we filter our, our entire understanding of what the problem of suffering is filtered through a very anthropocentric view on this. Right. So I, I was mentioning this to you earlier, Dan, that like coronavirus sucks for humans, but it's super awesome for the planet. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it right. is. If you, look at, if you look at like the pollution levels that, you know, right now, like the sound pollution, light pollution, um, if you look at the level of like fossil fuel, it's just like the, and almost by any metric, the universe is good or the, the, the natural world is getting a real break from humans at the moment, you know, and viruses to the extent that viruses are alive. And there's a big debate about that. But to, to the extent that viruses are alive, I mean, viruses are just doing their thing. Bacteria is just doing their thing. Cancers are just doing their thing. Every creature that like brutally slaughters another weaker creature just doing its thing. It's just doing what it does and what it has to do to survive. And so there is, I think, a real, I think it is an inescapable reality that for our world to exist as it does, there has to be death, pain, suffering, and destruction for various participants in that world. And we tend to only see our particular human suffering as being relevant here. There are reasons for this, but we think that the only theologically relevant experience is human experience. And I think that's questionable, probably, in the big term or in the big picture, yeah. I think we could even, like, it, the, the circle gets even smaller when you might think, well, okay, intellectually, we can kind of acknowledge that maybe there needs to be some kind of possibility for human experience to have this death, pain, suffering, and destruction. Uh, but why me? Mm-hmm. Or why my particular network of, you know, it's almost like a theological version of not in my backyard, right? You might agree that there needs to be some kind of set, set up for the law-like operations of the cosmos and the ecosystem to allow for the, you know, development of biological creatures, right? But, you know, intellectually, it might make one sense, but then, but, but why my parents or why, why my children or why, why that? So there's an incongruence there. There's a couple really interesting angles here to me. So I take your point, I'm, I'm just going to riff here, Sarah, and we'll see where this goes. I take your point that, you know, like evil for who, right? Like that's how you typed it. In a, in a message earlier this week, it, it sucks for us, but it's good for Gaia, for the planet or, you know, whatever. It's going to be good for woodland creatures if everybody stops logging for a while uh, and they can proliferate before then they start logging again and then more of them are killed. But there is, there's got to be something like it, we I don't think we want to theologically go all the way down that road of like all suffering is entirely subjective and, and sort of like meaningless, not neither good nor bad. If that were the case, then then we're basically saying that God has no preference about suffering. And we run into some problems there. First of all, with the text, we run into God's preferential option for the poor and the marginalized. Uh, if suffering mm-hmm. doesn't matter, why does God care more or how is God meaningfully on the side of those who suffer most unjustly? So there's some, there seems to be something about God that cares about justice and something about justice is like undeserved suffering. Maybe that's not the I, whole bit. Yeah. So I totally agree with that. And I am not saying that suffering is purely subjective or that it doesn't matter. I'm, um, not, I, I'm not pinning you to that either. I'm just saying that's yep. one way my mind went with your yep. rejoinder. Yep. 
So what I am saying is that the things that we pick out as being the most theologically relevant tend to almost always be human experience. Rel- sure, like that's good. Over, over and above, for example, the future of the future health of the planet. Right, which, right? which, but you could even reduce that to future human experience sure. if you wanted to do sure. the equation that way. Yeah, sure, sure. So if you want to reduce everything to human experience, you can do that and the planet still matters. When I talk about subjectivity, I am I'm simply saying that we tend to point out particular instances of human suffering. So it's like a category within a category here. So it's like we have human suffering. And then within that, we pick out particular things like the Holocaust as being particularly significant for the problem of evil. Whereas we don't think of like people dying at age 85 of lung cancer or something as being particularly evil. We don't, we, we don't, we tend to put them in different categories. The sort we of, know how Dan feels about the 80 year old. Let him go. I've been uh, my point has been clear. Of course, I'm right. you get my point, though. Like, I think <laughs> right, I'm not right. saying that things don't matter. I'm saying that we tend to inevitably and, and like, how could we do otherwise? We tend to inevitably focus our conversation on the theological relevance of the problem of suffering. We focus that on particular human experiences over and above other human experiences and over and above experiences of non-human subjects. That's good. Uh, maybe this is a good time to transition into this other response, which is the sort of life is a gift response. And, and which to me seems to be related to this biological resiliency thing as well, which I'm going to I'm going to save that and we'll, I'll see if I can get that in. But let's just look more specifically at life as a gift, because this is where we're we're finding an area of disagreement, Sarah, a little bit. So I I want to push back a little on what you just said. Which is that, you know, we 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 think the Holocaust is is so much worse or, or such a particular flashpoint in the history of suffering because we're coming at it anthropomorphically. But if we take the, the claim that I've put forward that like existence par existence as existence is a valuable thing is like maybe even infinitely valuable. So, some kind of like our ability to basically just be to breathe God's breath to to inhabit God's world mm-hmm. uh, and to have any sort of conscious experience of that. But but even I, I even want to say not necessarily conscious seems valuable. Let, let me throw something out there with my new son. So we play a game. We have a we have like two little games now. And one of them is after I change his diaper while he's still laying on the t- changing table. I tickle the bottom of his tummy and he reflexively kicks his jerkily kicks his legs and I go kicking those legs and he kind of smiles. And as he gets older, he makes more noise and more smiles. But I could tell even before he had many smiles because he didn't have those muscles yet that he was enjoying it. There's something about him using his legs Right. And he he will not have any memories of this time. He's not cognitively developed enough yet to do that or throw your dog running for the ball. When you throw the ball, there is like just a living in your body, physical existence that is valuable. Uh, I'm saying, of course, I have the value in him kicking his legs because I am interpreting that as like God's given us this gift of this son. It's new life. I have all these angles, but he is enjoying it, too, to a different and probably lesser extent. But there's something about that. So he's just here being able to kick his legs and, you know, have a clean diaper, that that combo feeling for him and to have his caregiver looking in his eyes and, you know, the beginnings of attachment and however you want to fill that out. Mm -hmm. 
that's valuable. Like that alone is something. And I, and I, it, in my intuition, it might be a lot more than something. It, it might be almost everything. I, I don't know where to put the slider on that, but I have an intuition about that. And it seems like we're running into something a little different around that. So Sarah, first, why don't you just respond? Yeah. And I'll keep it really brief. And I, I, I do think that existence is valuable. Um, and I take your point that conscious existence seems to be particularly valuable, but of course we would think that because we are conscious agents and our experience of ourselves is the most important thing to us, right? We don't have the sort of cosmic perspective that would be required to fully appreciate all the experiences that are happening around the world, uh, like around the universe, other than within humans, and also the sort of intrinsic value of things that might not have self-awareness. So I agree with you that, of course, of course, I also think that our conscious human experiences are some some of the most valuable or if not the most valuable things that there are. But of course, I would think that. I'll also argue against myself for a minute. He's currently just drinking breast milk and formula, but... By the time he's a year old or something, he'll be drinking cow's milk. Mm -hmm. And so what experiences that cows might have that is roughly analogous to the experience that he has as a one month old. Right. So maybe we would we could find some cognitive level of a young person that is roughly equal to the abilities of a cow or a baby calf or something. Mm-hmm. And like what the baby calf is going to not be with its mother so that its mother can keep producing milk so that Soren can keep kicking his legs and enjoying his existence. So there, there is an, a difficult and interesting angle there that I haven't thought through. Myron, mm-hmm. why don't you jump in on this? I think we're starting kind of in a very general way in this kind of life is a gift thing just by kind of reflecting on on different aspects of it. I think connecting it to theodicy, though, I think in this, you know, in this we we talked about this by a messenger, but. I think one of the, the poignant kind of applications of life as a gift to theodicy uh, comes out of uh, Stephen Colbert's interview with Anderson Cooper, yeah. where he where he talks, you know, about his own experience of going through suffering. And he begins his own his own attempt to kind of reconcile that by by just saying that he does believe that life is a gift and that uh, if that's true, then all of it is a gift, including those experiences of suffering and to to live and to 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 have the gift of existence, even when uh, it is hard and to go through things that you would not have chosen is still uh, to be received received as a gift. Uh, but in terms of his own kind of way of, of handling that uh, theologically is embedded with the idea of a suffering God. And as he understands his tradition, uh, God participates in suffering and says, I, I will do it too, right? To kind of walk and, and yeah. to show the, the, the presence of that. I actually want to, I want to put a pin in that for five minutes, because there's just one more thing I want to talk about on a biological level. And then we're going to kind of move to Christianity's take you know, an hour and a half into this conversation, <laughs> we're going to get to Christianity. But the the genesis of this entire conversation is this thought I had a week and a half ago with Soren, with my son. He has had a goopy eye. So a lot of infants get this. He had it from birth. Uh, recently, we did some antibiotic drops and he got rid of it. But his, his left eye, uh, tear ducts don't normally work in babies for a certain amount of time, but sometimes they start working and they produce tears, which produces goop. Uh, and whatever, just the technical yeah, term, technical right? term goop. is goop and you have to wipe it and it looks gross and stuff. But I was thinking, you know, adults don't really get that. I know of one character in one television show, the Nick that had a, a goopy eye, like a, like a leaking eye. I've never met a, an adult human 
that has a leaking eye. And yet it's quite common with infants. So there's something about resiliency that like, obviously our bodies get good at no longer having goopy eyes as we get older. And there are a million such examples like this. Our heart just keeps fucking beating. How the hell do hearts keep beating for 90 years? Our bodies, because of evolution in, in some meaningful sense, because of this intense competition of resources, we it's 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 a it's analogous to when two great authors have a feud with each other or Beatles and the Beach Boys in the mid 60s, just like challenging each other to new heights. Like, oh, the next Beatles album comes out. And so Brian Wilson does Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds comes out and they're like, shit, we got to do Sergeant Peppers. Right. So it's like the competition leads to excellence. And in a biological sense, excellence means resiliency. It means longer lives. It means uh, lives with less pain, frankly, because the person who's in constant pain and can't enjoy themselves, they're less likely to pass it on to their descendants than the person who's flourishing in, in some other way. So there is something going on here with the way that this intensely competitive, suffering-filled world also leads, on average, on the whole, but not in all cases, to greater overall species flourishing. And not just for humans, for any, for any, any species that is still replicating itself at any point in time, they are the most advanced they've ever been and like pretty damn well suited to their environment until the environment changes, of course. So I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts on that before we go explicitly theological. I mean, yes, yes. So again, this comes back to the lens that we alternately use to look at the world around us um, and to kind of filter our experience, right? So there are processes going on at all times, like simultaneously with all the shit that's happening. Um, there are processes going on that will be described by people as beautiful, as um, instances of flourishing, as, as, as incredible demonstrations of the body's ability to heal itself, of the planet's ability to heal itself. Um, it's actually amazing when you look at living systems at, at different levels of the natural world, how much re like innate restorative potential these, these, these systems have. And, the, and sometimes the best thing that you can do is to just like not touch something. Like don't just like don't mess it up. So just like just stand back and let nature do its thing. And this is true within the human body as well as um, within the natural world world. Um, there are really interesting discussions actually happening in ecotheology about like restoration ecology, like, like to what extent should we be trying to fix nature and to what extent should we be trying to like let nature do what it does best on its own when we just like step back and let it heal itself. Yeah. And so that happens. I mean, there is this tension between suffering and flourishing that is, I mean, that is what suffering is, right? So sort of um, the, the, when, when, when I think it was Tennyson wrote that nature is red in tooth and claw. The reason that nature is red in tooth and claw is that like if a tiger kills a, you know, a weak, whatever it is that runs away from it, then it, it has food to feed itself and to give milk to its babies and to allow these beautiful new little tiger cubs to come into existence. Right. And so there is this intrinsic link between death and suffering, joy, beauty, and flourishing. And you don't get one without the other essentially. And someday those tiger cubs are going to wind up in a zoo in Oklahoma. <laughs> in uh, wait, where are the, where the, in, <laughs> Where's the guy in, in Tiger King? What is going yeah, on? Oklahoma. Oh, no. okay. I just can't watch o it. Oklahoma, man. Um, so, but Myron, I wonder if you have another reaction. Like Sarah has been beating the it's subjective drum quite a bit today, which is fine. And it really interesting. 
Uh, I'm wondering if you have a, a different angle on this issue of resiliency and, and being well attuned for our environment leading to basic kinds of flourishing. A couple of thoughts. I mean, initially when you were kind of talking about your son and, and then going on to make larger kind of claims about evolution and biological resiliency, I, it sounded like you were giving kind of a, a, a biological version of a soul-making theodicy where through the result of these competitive and suffering-oriented physiological kind of processes, we become better, more fit, not for heaven necessarily, but or some Earth. kind of alternate spiritual reality, but for Earth. Yeah. Uh, and so that seemed, seemed to be interesting. I mean, I, th- I, mean, I think there, there is a certain beauty to the story that you were telling just about, about that. I, I'm always a little bit hesitant, though, to kind of make too much of it theologically in, in order to say, like, to, to quote, uh, you hearts keep beating for 90 years. You know, how the hell does that happen? Like, why? And like, okay, but they stop, right, at 90, mm-hmm. you know, like, is is that, is that a bug or is it a feature, right? And so that's kind of where I go just philosophically to say, well, I mean, they're, they're interesting kind of things to, that we can observe, but in terms of the meaning of the data, uh, theologically as to whether or not, you know, what does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about creatures? You know, the, the resiliency that arises through this kind of, physiological competition uh, and the way that the body is able to to kind of adapt and to develop and to heal itself in certain circumstances that that's that's all true until it's not right and then and and it's and it's you know all true for for many but not for all so that's kind of um uh, where where my mind goes as i kind of think through those things yeah okay so now we're getting to there's a couple ways to go here but let's start here Now we've gotten to, for me, the nub of the problem of evil, both moral and natural evil, is that it's profoundly unfair. And I don't think that things need to be truly fair, like truly equal. I don't have the moral intuition that all experiences need to be equal. I do have the moral intuition that some experiences are so bad, as far as I can tell, not just human, but other animals. You know, I had Bethany Solaratter. Uh, Solaratter, am I saying that right? Solarider. On, mm-hmm. yeah, on. Uh, you know, last year talking about animal suffering, and, and there's certain species that 90 percent of them, the second egg, they just drop it down, it hatches, and it just lays there until another animal eats it, and the, the parents don't care for it. It's like a evolutionary backstop for if the first egg, which 10 percent of the time has a problem. That stuff seems pretty rough. Uh, what what do those organisms, t- to the extent that they have a, a unified conscious experience, if it's so bad, uh, there are babies that get bit by certain kinds of mosquitoes and they just develop this kind of this kind of elephantitis type thing that just causes them to blow up and inflame and then they die. And I imagine all they pretty much feel is pain until they die. So like you said, Myron, some, not all. So I'm very grateful at a phenomenological personal level for my fairly well, well-designed body or whatever that, uh, you know, it's, it's more frail than most of my peers, but it works pretty well, uh, allows me to have this conversation with you guys. Uh, but what about the occasional, and it, it's probably occasional, but the occasional, uh, if, if God's so good, why would there be any organisms that only have a shitty experience and die, which also brings us to a uniquely Christian. I don't know how unique it is. There's maybe other traditions, but there is the eschaton. There is the redemption of all things. There is God's holy mountain. 
on, on which uh, the lion and the lamb lie down together and every tear is wiped away, there is the hope of a new type of experience mm-hmm. that comes after this. And in my version of dealing with the problem of evil, I have an intuition that whatever that is has to be there to, in some sense, make up for certain organisms experience on this earth and, and probably on other planets uh, and whatever, where it's just all shit and none of the joy that we all experience routinely. That's kind of rock bottom for me of the problem of evil. And I wonder if, if you guys have a different intuition, if that's not your rock bottom or, or how you think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not even sure that eschatological possibilities really get us off the hook here, to be honest. Um, I mean, to the extent that our natural life is valuable, there does some seem to be something theologically that we need to explain, even in just accounting for the different experiences of um, humans, even just different human individuals. I mean, you can, we can leave subjectivity talk aside even and just talk about differences between individual lives. You, you, we could even have like object, like even like objectively, if we could use objective language, different humans just experience drastically different qualities of life. That is just the case. Um, yep. And I think that that is something that isn't necessarily solved by eschatological possibilities insofar as we affirm that our life now matters. Myron, do you want to also lead us down the road of despair like Sarah has done? (laughs) I think that um, accounting for the, the vastly different experiences across the species with respect to quality of life and experience of suffering Sarah's exactly right, needs to, I mean, needs to be taken into account. I think that if we're using kind of the the categories that we started with, you know, natural versus moral evil, uh, and the ways in which they intersect and overlap, uh, I think that's, that's also relevant. And I think a large part of the, 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 the disparity that is experienced can be attributed to, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of moral evil, right? And the choices that are made and the system and the systems that are, are set up that uh, perpetuate all sorts of, of, of things. And so much so that they become ingrained and just be part of the natural kind of fabric. And that's a way in which they can kind of, can kind of intersect. So if, if we're talking about the intentional actions of agents by which people experience injustice and, and any inequality in terms of their lived experience, well, now we're in the realm of, of moral evil and understanding that and, and kind of that that's its own kind of set of questions. So to kind of screen those off, not that they're not important, but just to kind of focus then on instances where this you know inequality is experienced through it, it, through what seemed to be no intentional agent involved right. you know that's who to who to pin the blame on if not god for it, who is going to ultimately be responsible for how things are and, and i think that the, the here then you know you, <laughs> those those two responses are we going to look for reasons or are we going to say you know god must have reasons but we don't know what or 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 do we just think that the language of reasons doesn't doesn't make sense here. And so what your your kind of move is to say, well, if we put our our hope in some kind of eschatological scenario in which all is set right and and Marilyn Adams put it this way where in dealing with uh, horrendous suffering that God would be obligated to give to creatures uh, a life that on the whole is worth living, right? And if it turns out that cradle to grave 
the person might say, life is a gift, I return it, right? I, it, it wasn't worth it, but that could be redeemed eschatologically. And I mean, there's there's a lot of, of attractiveness there. I think to what degree you you think that Christians participate in kingdom life and in implementing kind of that eschatological vision in the here and now, you know, and, and participating in, you know, making that eschatological future realized now, then what suffering presents is an opportunity to show love in ways that reflect the right making of, uh, of, of, a, of a self-giving God of love in the here and now. And I think that's, does that, does that justify it? Uh, I don't, I don't know how we, you know, does that justify the natural evil? Does it, does, is that the reason that that's, that it has? I, I, I don't know that we can go there, but I think, or that we need to go there. But I think what we can see uh, is that these kind of, you know, instances provide an opportunity for people to show love in very real and meaningful and deep and creative ways that are beautiful. Yeah. So that's, that's a good transition back to Colbert. I, I do just want to say, I think I share Adams's intuition that God does owe every creature a life worth living. That in some sense, well, I, I don't know. I have to think about it more, but that in some sense, all the joy that I get to experience being alive, very clearly having a life worth living is not worth it. If at least for some decent chunk of, of organisms, like I get it at their cost. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that seems too convenient. That seems too anthropomorphic and selfish. And so I don't, I don't know that the eschaton is going to happen, right? It's not like I, well, that solves it for me or something, but it, it is one angle for me of like, well, this would be a way that God could deal with it. And there are various mechanisms, none of which I really understand that that might be the case. Perhaps, perhaps uh, Keith Ward and some kind of idealism is right. And, and mind and consciousness is actually logically prior to matter and therefore consciousness in some sense could extend to other universes or other existences. Perhaps there's something with multiple universes or ending and beginning. I mean, I don't know how God would port over the, uh, a being, you know, I don't, I don't know. Perhaps there is a, there is a uh, sort of like a Eastern idea of, of the, the droplet being melded into the ocean and that perhaps that is incredibly satisfying in whatever way it could be. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer. It, it's not, it still keeps me up at night in some sense, but back to Colbert, this idea that in his conversation with Cooper, and also he gets into some of this with on, on comedians and cars getting coffee with Seinfeld, uh, which is one of my favorite episodes of that show in Colbert famously lost uh, a child uh, and is a devout Catholic. Uh, and he says, like you said earlier, life is a gift and all of it's a gift. And in fact, suffering in his experience has been shown to be a gift. And one further angle is in Christianity, we have a God who suffers along with us, at least in, in, you know, the kind of Christianity that Colbert adheres to, which is a more progressive Catholicism. Uh, and I, I believe the three of us would reject the classical theistic idea of God's immutability where God can't be bothered with us. So God is, is in the world. God is in the muck with us. And that provides an interesting angle on this question of evil and suffering. If God's suffering as well, what does that do, Sarah? What do you think? On one hand, 
I think that view of God is, well, for, well, it means what we, it depends on what we mean by God suffers with us. Do we mean that God is the same omnipotent sort of um, providential divine being that we always think of it being as, as being all powerful and just happens to also experience our suffering, even though God could have acted otherwise to prevent suffering. You know, right. that's Does one... God choose to experience suffering with exactly. us? Right. Exactly. Or is God necessarily suffering? So is God a lot truly alongside us and not able to intervene in the ways that kind of classical theism would, 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 right. would suggest? God, God um, can neither, in Tom's words, God can neither uh, single-handedly prevent these kinds of sufferings, but yep. nor can God exempt God's self from feeling them. In, in some right. sense, through right. through our feeling them. Right. So if we want to side with the first option, so to say like, yes, God suffers with us like, as a loving parent would suffer with their child's tears as they are getting the vaccine or whatever. I mean, that's better than saying that God doesn't suffer with us. I don't think it gets us off the hook for all the reasons that we've already discussed tonight. If you go the other route and say that, okay, well, suffering is a thing and that thing, this, this phenomenon should absolutely impact the way that we think about God and God's abilities and God's sort of nature and God's relationship with the created world, then we get a version of God that critics would say is not worth calling God. So is a God that who cannot act worth calling God? Is that a God worth having? Is this a God worth worth, worthy of the title? Who cannot act in certain, in ways X, Y, and Z, right? Exactly. If God cannot prevent suffering, is that a God worth worshiping? Essentially is, is, is what's going on there. And also there is this sort of existential response as well that is that will say, um, I don't care if God is suffering with me. I'm still suffering. <laughs> like, like why? Like, I don't need someone to commiserate with me. Like what I need is somebody to to heal. Right. To, to heal, to fix, to prevent. That is what love is. Love is not saying, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm patting you on the head. Love is stepping in and 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 making reality different in one way or another. And um, so so the level of comfort that people experience from hearing that God suffers with them is not going to be the same across the board. Yeah, that's really good to bring up that just the the human very aspect of like, Maybe I don't care if God's suffering along with me. I, I'm not immediately aware of it. It doesn't uh, affect my experience of it. Myron? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, and I just think I keep kind of circling back on this idea that if it's the case that we have an opportunity to participate with God in bringing about the eschatological hope of, of a redeemed and reconciled you know, people, uh, a redeemed and reconciled creation, then I think the opportunity to to show love to people in suffering is just really really our our, our highest calling. And I think too that with um, wow, that sounded high minded. It's our highest calling. Good. I like so, that. So, but I but I think that it gets wrapped up in all sorts of other theological concepts. I mean, when I I immediately interpreted uh, Colbert's description of a suffering God christologically and uh, through the, the the suffering of Jesus and the almost kind of like a, an empathy kind of quotient to say that, you know, empathy can, if, if we are suffering with other people, I mean, one of the reasons that empathy is often just, you know, carte blanche said to be a good thing is that that emotional kind of response to the suffering of others is going to motivate action. Right. So I don't know exactly how it all works. Mm-hmm. That, but that brings up a, a question I'd like to ask each of you. Do you think that compared to other religious traditions or non-religious traditions that, Christianity uh, is better equipped, worse equipped, differently equipped to sort of deal with this problem of natural evil? I mean, 
I, I just initially would say differently equipped. However, I, I don't know better or worse that I'm not a comparative religions uh, person, yeah. but just and you're not up on in, all the recent literature. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The other kind of thing, though, that, that strikes me is that even with I mean, what is what is the Christian tradition? Right. Well, I mean, just I guess the, I just mean incarnational like Trinitarian God. Uh, d- does that sort of like you're, you're talking about the Christological way that you interpreted Colbert? Mm-hmm. Do we get like an extra possible tack here by God becoming human and suffering in a human body, for instance? Does that only help us with human suffering and not other suffering? Or does the incarnation say something else about all creatures, including uh, non-humans? So I guess the two things I'd want to say is that certainly the Christian story and the Christian narrative is going to provide a unique set of resources that are available for people to think through suffering and to be able to uh, to act uh, in, in ways to alleviate, alleviate suffering. Um, however, religion, for better or for worse, is often sadly used for worse. And within kind of the Christian tradition, it's not uh, alleviating suffering that's done in, in, in the name of, of, of Jesus, but it's perpetrated. And sure. um, so, so I think that, you know, I, 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 at its best, there are certain resources available in the Christian tradition to, to work and to be mo- and to motivate people for suffering, uh, for alleviating suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's just, we just want to avoid kind of, we don't get too far down that road without needing to be sensitive to any kind of triumphalist kind of sure, account. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't want to be triumphalist, but I, I'm thinking of a lot of Eastern thought uh, yeah. and, and like the, the noble truths of Buddhism that life is suffering. Um, and the way out of suffering is to sort of meditate and, and become disattached that sort of like suffering is a given. It's always there. Uh, and so it's up to you essentially with your abilities as a, as a higher order being to meditate your way out of caring about that. That's at least not the entire thing, but that's a big part of the Buddhist uh, move. And that's a very different move, for instance, than Colbert's answer to Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, when I think about my own appropriation of the Christian tradition or interpretation of it, for me, I grow, I go back to, you know, a, a constitutive kind of biblical text for me is Jesus kind of announcing public ministry by reading that portion of the, the Isaiah the scroll Isaiah, yeah. and saying, you know, uh, this is, this is the good news, right? The, these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing and it's, and who is, to whom is it good news, but it's people, it's the captive, it's the poor, yep. it's those people on the margins. And you were mentioned earlier, kind of a, a preferential focus on, right. on the suffering of others. Right. So, so if, if we understand our, our, the central kind of narrative of our tradition as being good news, it's got to be good news for those who suffer. Right. Yeah. And that to me is kind of a litmus test. And are we, you know, who have power and privilege using it in service of those who don't? I do appreciate you pulling me back to the practical because the almost this entire conversation has been theoretical, which is where I like to live. Uh, Sarah, hop in here. Yeah, this is um, this is one of those questions where I have to like, I'm at, I feel like I'm on a fork on the road and I can either go the conceptual route or like I can go the personal route. Right. I mean, I do think that Christianity may well have a unique set of resources. First of all, it is an extremely broad tradition, right? There are so, I mean, so Tom Wright and Tom Ward are both within Christian, you know, we have just so many different responses to every single 
problem that we, you know, could, could throw a theological yeah. problem that we could throw up here. It's so it's such a rich tradition. It's a tradition of traditions. But it is, I think Christianity is inherently relational in a way that um, can be particularly meaningful for, for humans. Um, yeah. So it's, it is relational. And there is an emphasis on God suffering. I think the, the sort of the, the, the notion of a suffering Christ, a dying God is is unique, I think, to Christianity. Um and in some ways, and 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 that is powerful, and that can be very powerful. I think that is a different question, though, from the question of whether or not individual humans are able to access that as a as a as a meaningful as a meaningful response to suffering. Um, that well, that, Colbert seems yeah. to be accessing it. I mean, yeah, it, you know, that seems to be an enfleshed example of a person accessing it. At least yeah. it comes out in his answer in the interview. Yeah. And I think, though, for me, um, the question that is and this is actually a really live question for me. I'm not sure why okay, some we're going to get respond, the personal. All right. Why good. do some people respond like Colbert and some people do not have that experiential access to the sort of the rich sort of comfort and peace and solace that he seems to have found in his life through his God? Um, even in the midst of that sort of suffering. I th- actually, I may have mentioned this to you before, Dan, but I mean, my sort of like paradigmatic example of this from my own life is when my mom died when I was 16. Did we talk about this before? Oh, I think maybe, yeah. Maybe. Okay. But just real quickly then, my, when my mom, my mom died of cancer very suddenly and tragically when I was 16. And I was one of those teenagers who was like passionate, a passionate like Christian, like I was, I was doing all this stuff. I was like absolutely in love with God and desperately wanted nothing but oneness with God. Like I was an oddball in that respect. And I, but I was, I was truly, truly like seeking and longing for, for, for spiritual growth and connection and, and, and discipleship really. So when my mom like tragically died of cancer, um, and in a very short period of time, and very painfully, it was not the sort of death that one looks back on and is like, oh, it was so peaceful. And we were with her. It was it was everything about it was awful. Everything was painful. There was, you know, she, it, everything about it was like the worst possible death you can possibly have. And um, I remember laying in my bed the night that she died. It was in northern Michigan. And like I had my window open. So it was like there was like this like beautiful night breeze coming in. And I remember laying in my bed. I was in complete shock and praying to God. And I, I was 16. I was young to be able to articulate this. But I said, you know, God, I am not going to blame you for my mom dying. I know that cancer just happens, but I cannot survive if I don't feel your presence and your love in the days that are to come. And for me, I think so much of my life since that moment has come from the reality that in the days, months, years after that, I did not experience God. I experienced nothing but an absence of God. And um, that was my experiential reality. And there could have been thousands of natural psychological reasons for that, social reasons for that, familial reasons for that. Uh, and I don't doubt that. But for me, it was like, well, I can explain away natural suffering. I can explain away natural evil. But what I can't explain away is why I don't have access to the experiential realities of the Christian faith, which I've given my life to. So for me, I think that there is always going to be a difference between experiential access to theological truths and the truths themselves. Yeah, that's really, that's really, I mean, it's very sad, of course. It's also really helpful that if we say there are these resources, it does not mean that people have equal access to them, just like they don't have access to economic resources in the real world. That there's a kind of psychological pluralism at work here in terms of what works for us or what there's there's probably even just like 
wiring differences, sort of like neuroplastic differences to experiencing uh, certain chemical releases upon hearing certain concepts that are just that just vary between individual brains. And therefore, those things will factor in differently to people's approaches and reactions to to differing events, to traumatic events or back to resiliency, how that differs between people. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, whenever you tell me versions of that story, it's it's kind of heartbreaking. I want to I'm conscious of the clock here. We've been going a long time. But Myron, before my last thing, get in there. Sarah's story just reminded me of experiences of some of my students. And I mentioned earlier uh, this course of uh, suffering and belief in God. I've taught maybe half a dozen times as part of my career. And um, I think it was probably the second time through it. And, and the course is set up to to be a fairly you know, detailed, uh, in many respects, technical and theoretical kind of foray into uh, philosophy of religion. We do a little bit of historical stuff, but a lot of contemporary things. We spend two classes on uh, planting as free will defense and modal logic and possible worlds. We read Leibniz and other things. And and um, uh, about the second time through the course, it was maybe, we were maybe like a, a, a few weeks in, and a student came to me during office hours and said that she signed up for the course because uh, her father had died and she wanted to understand, you know, in some ways what resources there could be to help her through her own suffering. And I was like, holy shit, like this is this it made the reality of student experience of suffering uh, real to me in ways that that I hadn't appreciated before. And ever since then, uh, when I teach the course, you know, I begin just by trying to create space to kind of acknowledge that, that you know, I don't know, and everyone's got a, their own story of, of navigating suffering and, and, and loss and pain. And throughout the years, you know, students have, have come to me, and maybe the ones who hated the course, just they never come talk to me. But the ones who uh, uh, have, you know, taken that time during office hours to talk about their own loss, you know, um, you know, horrific stories of, of often losing parents or other kinds of personal tragedies that they've gone through. And for the people who've come to connect with me, what they've said is that they have found uh, the language of philosophy and philosophical theology helpful for them to, to just just to, you know, articulate a, a range of responses to to their own own suffering. And I think that that's part of the the upside of theological kind of reflection is that it can help give a, a language to articulate experience even and, and even if that's the only benefit even if it just gives people a, a, a set of tools to to chart their own narrative whether or not they come to the correct answer whether or not they come to the to solve all the puzzles or problems at least they in the voice in their own head at three in the morning they're able to have a, a set of categories that uh, allow them to have a productive conversation with their own their own psyche yeah beautiful all things equal, we should end here on a personal level and not go back to, to one last theoretical thing. But it, it didn't get it in earlier. And, and they, it's a response we haven't talked about yet, really. We've mentioned Tom Ord and his idea that God, by God's very nature, perhaps is non-controlling. But Philip Clayton, in his book, Predicament of Belief, that he co-authored with somebody else, I forget, uh, the recent episode, Wrapping Our Faith in Doubt, was me talking with Phil about that book, but a different aspect of that book. We didn't spend a lot of time on this particular, it's, it's not a solution, but it's, it's an approach to the problem of evil. And I just, I do want to throw it out there for a few minutes just so that people can hear you guys respond to this. 
And Clayton basically says, look, it's possible that this entire project depends on God being non-coercive. It's possible that nothing that we love and, and, and get to experience uh, that a world where uh, beings evolve into these kind of flourishing beings. It's possible that if God puts his thumb on the scale, that all of that goes away. Mm-hmm. And that is a kind of thing that Tom Ord has in his book, God Can't. And that, and as you said, Myron, sometimes this stuff can be a great comfort. And Tom has unending anecdotes of people responding to him in person and through email and whatever that like a new version of understanding God has actually brought them tremendous comfort and, and peace in thinking through their own suffering. And and this is uh, for the moment, my favorite response right now is that, yeah, it might be that the whole thing mm-hmm. is contingent upon this aspect of God such that then we have the opportunity to uh, respond with God in the, in the, you know, like th- that, that down that upstream of our responding to suffering with care uh, our our being co-regents with god and co-creators and and bringing about shalom and bringing about upstream from all of that is like a logical necessity that god not coerce that god be this kind of way or else the whole thing falls apart so i just i do think we should get that out there for a few minutes at least sarah a yes and a no a slight no, just because it seems to be that a God who really cannot be, well, I mean, we, we can debate what coercive means. If coercive means saving mm-hmm. somebody from immense pain and suffering, then sometimes I think we want a little bit of coercion. But um, I would have a, I have debates with the author of the book. So you're talking about Stephen Knapp and Phil Clayton. Um, yes. I would have debates about the author, with the authors of this book, about the extent to which God could could save people from a little bit more suffering than God does without being coercive. So um, they use language of lure um, as well. So, so Clayton talks quite a bit about, about God as a divine lure. And to the extent that God is a divine lure and can in some way communicate and be involved with human minds, then surely God could, um, could, could save people from more suffering and more pain than than is currently the case. So yeah, that's how like much slight. luring? How much luring is coercion? Exactly. Like, well, exactly. Yeah. And this is actually a. This is. I mean, we could get into the whole divine action debate. Like, isn't a lure still an action? Okay, anyway, but but sure. but. But the yes, but there is a yes here as well. And I think this is probably going to be um, uh, congruent with what, what Myron has been saying throughout this conversation, which is that to the extent that the sort of complexity of the subjective and experiential realities that we see around us um, are indeed complex, there is immense suffering and there is immense joy and there is beauty and there's life and there's passion and there's also like death and destruction to the extent that we are um, co-creators to some extent in that process and we are active participants in that process. And by all accounts, we have far more agency and ability to effect change in line with certain goals and values and dreams and theological visions, then there is a really hopeful possibility and a responsibility as well, uh, an enormous responsibility to kind of take up the mantle of becoming those active participants in creation and recognizing where in the suffering world around us, the, the joy and the life is not being shared and to find creative ways to bring life where there is no life. I mean, there are obvious ways that we all kind of know to do that, but I think there are far, there are many, many, many less obvious ways. There are areas of brokenness within human lives and in the natural world that we, that we ignore. 
so there is a divine yes probably in there as well and but it, it kind of puts the burden back on humans i think myron's gonna like that idea of putting the burden back on humans what, how, what's your response to the to the clayton nap maybe it's all contingent on this particular kind of god for any of the good stuff to happen I think just the first question that I would have, and, you know, Sarah mentioned, like, what do you, what do you mean by coercion? And I guess how, what, you know, are we, uh, I like the idea of a non-coercive God. And I, I think that, that that makes a lot of, of sense to, to my own interpretation of the tradition, but do we have a God who intervenes, right? So it's one thing to say that, that God doesn't coerce, but does God intervene and uh, larger questions about divine action and, um, you know, for coercion to me uh, is a way that undermines, you know, human free agency, right? So that would be something that, if by non-coercive we mean not undermining human freedom, uh, I'm certainly on board with that. But that wouldn't preclude God from intervening. And then I think you you just raise all the sorts of questions to say, yeah. That, so I I kind of resonate with the no part of Sarah's no, but I but I also uh, adopt kind of the yes part too. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of wrap this up again, sort of memoir. And and Sarah, you know, you and I are on the record on, on our, uh, by the way, a little bit lesser downloaded episode, actually both of yours, which I thought were quite good, uh, the cognitive science of religion and the psychedelics and other spiritual technologies, two of my fa- two fantastic conversations. And unfortunately, on the lower side of the of the downloads. Sorry um, about that, Dan. <laughs> no, I, yeah, sorry, sorry, Dan. I mean, I sometimes I think that, and and of the two, the psychedelics one is way better. That was <laughs> so interesting. It was so 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 fascinating. But um, Sarah, you and I do differ in our current visceral or whatever experience of God, mm-hmm. and so what I'm working with here as I think through the problems of evil mm-hmm. is um, I do think I experience God, and I experience God in a way that's pretty consonant with other worldwide descriptions of people who have spiritual experience and religious lives and consonant with the kind of people in each of those traditions that I most want to be like. So there's a third, there's like another layer, right? So I have this like undeniable set of evidence that God is in some sense active, whatever that just at a phenomenological level, the type of people I want to be like have similar experiences that I have and they call it God. So we could, that's its base form. Also, it seems like to all the way back to Myron uh, and Paul Draper's indifference, hypothesis of indifference argument, the world seems to be quite random and is certainly unfair. And God seems to not be coercively doing anything uh, to solve that as far as I can tell. And so that's the tension that I'm living in. I imagine that the tension would feel different if I didn't have this experiential mm-hmm. uh, lane. And Sarah, for you, it's interesting because you don't have that, but you do. You are in relationship with people that have it. Mm-hmm. And you also look up to and trust certain thinkers that have had it or have it. I don't know if you, I don't know if you want to just say two words about that before we go. Yeah, sure. So just very quickly, um, I do agree with you that the people that I most value and that I most want to be like tend to be people who would label themselves in some way as Christian and who would describe themselves as being in a transformative relationship with some version of a personal God. That is, those are the the, the sorts of um, most compelling people and, and, and actually conceptual models that I find 
around me tend to be of that sort. And then actually that's been just the, the, the sheer phenomenology of that has for me been um, why I haven't left the game altogether. Right. Yeah. Um, and I actually am somebody who, um, I mean, there's a lot of work being done on the, the problem of divine hiddenness. So like why some people just don't experience God. I'm actually one of the more painful things I've, I, one of the more painful possibilities that I've been like wrestling with is that I might cognitively just not be a person who has the sort of like the makeup, uh, that is most conducive to the sorts of experiences that would make belief a felt reality for me. You might be the blessed are those who have believed and not seen in that, in in like a biological sense. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. I think Paul Draper, is, Paul Draper has come up before in this conversation, but Paul Draper has this really good um, paragraph of one of his pieces where he actually describes himself in this way. He's like, I just don't, I just have not had the experiences that would be necessary for me to be able to sign up for these particular things. It's not right. the cognitive content that I have a problem with. It's just that I lack experiential access to this world. Yeah, but I agree with you that there's a reason I keep my, keep one foot in the game. Yeah, it's real. It's it remains one of the most fascinating questions in my own thought life is is just wrestling with that. Myron, any last words before we let you let everybody go? Uh, This has been great. This has been really rich. Uh, I've learned a lot uh, and uh, lots of food for thought and hopefully get more downloads, Dan, because, you know, that 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 son of yours got to eat. Well, coronavirus is trending, so I think we'll do better. (laughs) Um, We didn't get really to the N.T. Wright, Tom Ord thing. We talked a little bit about Tom, but I will have a link to this this Time magazine article that Wright wrote where he basically said Christians just lament. We don't actually need to explain evil and Tom saying, actually, we can lament and explain. Uh, and then, uh, Sarah, will you send me that Wildman article? I'm going to put a link to that. I, the very long title. Yeah, I don't remember it. And then uh, the Clayton and Knapp book. And, of course, Jim's BioLogos article that I mentioned earlier. And I think that'll be good for the notes. Sarah and Myron, thank you guys so much. This was this is the longest interview I think I've done for this show. Uh, but it, it flew because it was really great. Uh-huh. Thanks so much, Dan. And Sarah, it's almost 1am in Scotland. I'm so so tired. Go to bed. You performed admirably. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. All right. That was a marathon. Thank you, Josh Gilbert, for editing that very long conversation on short notice. He turned that around in two days, folks. That's an editor. Uh, Of course, there's the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke five bucks a month but there's a sliding scale email me if that's you and we'll see you next week i don't know which of these awesome episodes i'm going to air maybe i'll put a poll up in the facebook group which is for patrons only one last ad couldn't help it all right see you guys next week